Hey everybody, on this episode we're going to be discussing The Dark Knight from 2008. Uh, we do recommend watching the movie. I'm sure most people have watched this movie to be honest with you, but we recommend watching it. It makes the discussion more interesting to listen to. So John, what is The Dark Knight about? Cue the dramatic music. Mike, we live in a world, and that world is made up of people. People who go to their jobs and live at their homes with their families. But one man is going to stand up to that. One man is going to fight for that. It's not about being the hero we deserve to need. It's about deserving the need to be the hero. It's about being a watchful guardian, a silent protector, an unseen watchman, an invisible shield, a cloaked ally, a hidden defender, a brooding anti-hero, a shadow in the night, a whisper on the wind, a lone wolf, an alpha dog, a big cheese, a head honcho, a candle in the dark, a plastic bag floating on the wind, a yellow submarine, a wise guy, a silver bullet, an ace in the hole, a dark night. <laughs> oh, do, you, John. do you feel like you understand the movie now? Yeah, I've got That's, it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've noticed. I've noticed something. Actually, mm -hmm. in this moment, I've realized yeah. that there's like there's a difference between your intros and mine. I'm not I, I'm not sure if you caught this, but um, <laughs> have I you mean, noticed wait, that? I guess. Do you know what it is? Have you figured it out yet? What? What? I'm no, not I'm wearing not. hockey pants. Okay. Okay. We we did it. <laughs> Welcome to this film could be your life. Uh, that was wonderful. That was, that was great. That was Hey everybody, welcome once again to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Hello. Are you doing, so it, I, I expected you to do some voices. Where are the I drugs going? Get it out of the way. Yeah, okay. You know that quote's not from this movie, right? That's from Batman Begins. It's from my You're life. Not even right. <laughs> okay okay you you commonly ask where are the drugs going that's right okay yeah just checking so as you have hopefully picked up on we are discussing the 2008 superhero film batman the dark knight nope the dark knight directed co-written and co-produced by christopher nolan it's the direct sequel to the 2005 film batman begins the screenplay was by Christopher Nolan and his brother Jonathan Nolan. The cinematography was by Wally Feister. It was edited by Lee Smith. The music was by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. And it stars Christian Bale, Heath Ledger, Michael Caine, Gary Oldman, Aaron Eckhart, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Morgan Freeman. Oh. Uh, Mike, I have a quote. This is kind of like a random... I, I just end up reading a lot of like random kind of film criticism things out there, just pop culture sites and stuff. Sure. Uh, so this critic named Bill Jabiri 
Mm. uh, 10 years after the movie's release, wrote this. Its politics have been discussed ad infinitum. Its stylistic influence has become ubiquitous, then passe, then somehow aspirational. It is the biggest hit of Nolan's career and also the one he's been trying to live down ever since. Hmm. A mass market product that also happens to be a personal picture driven by genuine moral vision. Mm. Uh, I'm prone to exaggeration, but I, I really can't stress enough that like we're covering the movie that was sort of my like Star Wars in terms yeah. of impact on my life and movie going experience and also like culture. I don't know if it was all culture, like American culture, but the pocket of culture that I was in, and I think probably a lot of American culture was like in highly impacted by this movie. It was kind of a watershed moment yeah. that everyone participated in, everyone acclaimed. It was the perfect circumstance. Sorry, it was the perfect storm of circumstances. It was all of these things coming together that made this just a huge deal movie. Uh, so I don't know. I'm excited to talk about it. But in a sense, I don't know where to start, except that we usually start with our history with the movie. Uh, so I don't know, Mike, what's your history with the movie? You can also, if you wanted to comment on just the impact of it, I'm sure that will come up as you talk about, you know, your past with it. Uh but yeah, what's your experience with this movie? How has this movie impacted you? And, and what do you see this as, as kind of being, as existing in the culture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, oh, what a year. I mean, it's wild to think that Iron Man and this movie came out in the same year. It's kind of yeah, that is crazy. Because really, those set they set the course for comic book movies and honestly now mainstream blockbusters to today, right? You have on one yeah. hand this dark, realistic, kind of gritty version of the hero story um which in a weird way has actually lost out to the counterpart which was iron man which is the marvel spectacle but um i guess the new batman really kind of revives the 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 tone that this movie kind of sets in action as one of those two routes um but man when this movie came out it uh it, it it's not an exaggeration to say that it changed everything i mean i think this yeah. is the best example of like a quote unquote high-minded superhero flick i mean it was mm. it was groundbreaking when nolan was willing to be attached to this franchise this comic book franchise as like this heavy hitter of cinema um it was the first movie that i can remember that took a superhero story and essentially just made a a, a capital s serious piece of film you know it's essentially just heat with batman right while still mm. fundamentally being a batman movie which is critical it introduces like a number of philosophical concepts that I can't remember appearing in superhero stories before this. And that's pretty out there. And then it's also just a Nolan movie. So it's a banger action flick. So yeah, in terms of like its impact on culture, it, it's wild. Um, it, yeah. It's almost, it's almost too um, little to call it a watershed moment for modern cinema. It, it is truly yeah. one of the game changers of the last um you know, 20 years, it and Iron Man both. So anyways, outside of culture, in my personal experience, I cannot tell you how <laughs> divine, transcendent this movie was <laughs> for me as like a teenage boy who worked at a comic shop. I mean, I remember the anticipation. We were both like, so I, I, would have, I was like 15, I think, yeah, right? And yeah. you, were, you were around the same age. Yeah, yeah we were it, the 
perfect audience for this movie. And I was I was literally working in a comic shop. So we talked about this movie as it built like to its release every single day that I was working. Someone came in and was like, did you see the latest teaser trailer? We finally heard the Joker's laugh for the first time. And like you're parsing it, you're picking it apart. You cannot wait. I mean, I remember how maligned the ledger casting was when it first came out, but then that teaser yeah, trailer. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, but then the teaser trailer had everyone like, oh my God, he's going to do it. And I mean, I was all the hype. And then I went to a midnight showing because I was not too old to not do that anymore. And I didn't have kids. <laughs> and it is still by far, unanimously, by a knockout, my favorite in person theater experience of all time was that midnight showing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still remember the opening scene. The pencil trick had the theater just yeah. like roaring. The fl- when the truck flips and the action chase sequence, I mean, there's a gasp. I mean, this theater was just bouncing, and I think as I sit with it today, today, it's probably still my favorite superhero movie. Probably, probably. Yeah, I think it is, and it's up there with one of the greatest sequels of all time. So that's my take, and I'm sticking to it. I can't I can't agree more with essentially all of that. Uh, I'll start. I'll kind of reverse what you did. So my history with the movie is is remarkably similar to yours that, um, you know, we were obviously the perfect age. We were the perfect demographic. And I remember not so much. I didn't work at a comic shop, but, you know, friends at school. Also, by that point, I'm already online. I'm on Reddit, I think. And you're right. There is all of this sort of waves happening first when everyone's like, who is, you know, or what's with Heath Ledger, the guy from, you know, the the heartthrob romantic comedy guy is going to be the Joker. This is going to be a train wreck. Uh, and then the hype building as it's like, oh, this might be good. But then the explosion when the movie was released <laughs> and it was it just sent shockwaves. Yeah. Right. It was like. Yeah. So I saw the movie uh, the next day because I couldn't get. Um, or I like hadn't really paid I, I, as much as I was paying attention. I didn't pay attention enough to get midnight uh, tickets, but I wanted to see it soon. So I saw it on Friday morning because it came out on Friday, but the midnight release was obviously late Thursday. I saw it on Friday morning with my dad. I don't remember why I didn't go to school. I like to imagine my dad took me out of school to see it. That doesn't sound <laughs> right, but I like to imagine that. Um, and Mike, at, on Friday morning at 9.30 a.m., the theater was literally totally packed, which is yeah. pretty unusual. Like, I yeah. remember thinking that. And I went back to see it in theaters with friends uh, five more times. Yep, so that too. was the th- that was the impact of the thing. We went to see it in IMAX. We saw it in the regular theater. This was just such a... I don't know. It was every... I, what I what I would say is that this movie was everything that all of us wanted it to be and also somehow way more. Yes. It was the first Ugh. movie I saw that... Um, it, it, it was so... It was the first superhero movie that was so... Theme, that was as thematically rich as, like, any other drama that I might have seen that year. Probably not any drama released that year, but any that I might have seen, right? Any it, movie ever. Any movie ever, no, 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 but you know, for like for like a big tentpole movie, because yeah. it's a spectacle movie, but it's also actually landing some pretty heavy-handed philosophy. We're going to talk about how much it lands all of it, yes, yeah, because sure. I think one sure. of the things that's aged interestingly about this movie is I've realized how, especially compared to maybe some of Nolan's other movies, it's a very imprecise movie, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit, it's a little bit spaghetti on the wall with how it's approaching its themes and it's 
situations and its characters, but the few things that hit, or, or I should say the things that do hit land so strongly and yeah. are so, so such heavy hitters of like, of like, wow, that was amazing that you're just in. And it was, it was, it was, yeah, it just changed everything. I mean, this movie is why there's 10 best picture nominees at the Academy Awards. Cause this didn't get nominated for best picture. And everyone said, what? And yeah. it was the, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the Academy faced this moment of realizing how intensely irrelevant they were and had to fix it. Um, Obviously, Ledger became, I believe, the second actor ever to posthumously win the uh, the Best Actor Award. I mean, it was just you saw Joker costumes for Halloween for the next five years. You I don't know, like it, the entire rest of or the, the next 15 or 20 years of popcorn movies of, of big action movies and, and things started here. Um, you're right, of course. It also started here because of Iron Man. And it's, it's just so weird that at the time, I don't think anyone would have called it working out this way. But of course, Iron Man really did set the precedent. But Dark Knight is still part of that conversation. Yeah, of course. I think that the biggest thing, the way I heard it, or the, the way that I, I've heard it described, I think, which I really, I, I really latched on to, both of these movies are about superheroes. Um, but I think you can make a good argument that this, that both of them also are distinctly not comic book movies yeah and i think mm. that was kind of the biggest change this year and, and and that's the level where it's like on the one hand it's surprising that both of these came out the same year but on the other hand i think that this is what we were building to yeah because yeah you know superheroes there is something that obviously really captures the public's imagination right at this moment getting into the 21st century with that but i think that the key thing is that up up to this point even good superhero movies like Spider-Man 2 and stuff like that, we're still very much attached to the idea of what is a comic book. Yeah. And we're, and we're beholden to like, and that means visually, but also thematically and stylistically and humor. Like, you know, they were just very, very attached to the idea. Both the Dark Knight and Iron Man actually are pretty much in no way comic book movies. They have no real you know, besides the fact that they have superheroes in them, there's nothing in them that harkens to the tropes and stylings and aesthetics of comic books. Um, so I think that was kind of the watershed moment. And then I, I guess the last thing I have to say about that, because after this, we'll try to just talk about the, the movie, not so much the history of it. Um, but the last thing I would say about that is that I, I think it's also really interesting. You said it yourself, why Iron Man became, you know, actually the precedent for the next 20 years. Dark Knight, maybe not so much. I think it's because, you know, obviously studios wanted to replicate the Dark Knight as well. But frankly, the Dark Knight, or sorry, frankly, Iron Man was just much more replicable. Yeah. Iron Man created a formula that Marvel was able to tweak and then, you know, mass produce. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I also Dark think... Knight is a little bit more highbrow than that, frankly. Sure. It just has more going on and is just, you know, smarter and more interestingly written. And it's just not something you can farm out to a studio system in the same way, I don't think. You know, I think... You can disagree, I but... I, I kind of yeah. agree. But I also think part of this is just who whose hands it was in. I think it's also mm -hmm. just a reminder that the people who made Iron Man uh, were way smarter and better at this business than um, DC was. And DC you know, didn't they, have a Kevin Phage. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree with that. And I think there's a part yeah. of it. It's like, I, so I don't want to say flat out, this couldn't be repeated or re it couldn't be made replicable, 
but it's like maybe it could have been if it was led by the same creative design team um i don't know uh dc has bungled has tried to repeat this and bungled it pretty much ever since um until the most recent (laughs) batman honestly so i i I just wanted to throw that out there don't want to underplay how smart that disney team has been and uh quite frankly turning this into big business so yeah yeah I do think it is it is and and it almost is interesting we haven't talked about Nolan that much. We we've actually covered him on this podcast already. Yeah. Um you you kind of hinted at it. It is truly bonkers that Nolan was attached to these projects at all. And I yeah. think that quote I had is hinting at that like you know, debatably the quote says he's been trying to live this movie down. I that's a little melodramatic. It is true that he did not he did basically after this series say cool i'm never doing anything like that again yeah seemingly yeah. right he, he's he's just he and i don't think that's because he disliked it necessarily but i think for him there was certainly an element where this was his one for them um not oh, to say he sure. wasn't passionate about it but he definitely leveraged this into cool now i get to make my own movies yeah. from now on Let, let's just um, say i can guarantee you that dc asked nolan to take over the dc universe before they asked Zack snyder and uh he said no. I'm gonna guess. He said so. LMAO no. <laughs> but how about you give me a billion dollars to make uh Inception instead? Yeah. And yeah. he said, sure. And I'm there glad he did, honestly. I'm happy with his film. Yeah, yeah I, I would have been super bummed if he just became, you know Actually, Zach I don't know. I say that, but are you telling me you, you wouldn't have watched the Nolan Batman versus Superman? Oh, I would have watched. Are you telling me it. you wouldn't have watched the Nolan Superman? But I'm in ex- jazz now. Exchange for like Inception and Interstellar. I mean, there's just like I That's like true. I That's like true. that he still makes non IP work. It's so nice that we Tenet, have a- his best movie secretly. I mean, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm starting. I'm just. I'm just starting to plan. I'm just starting to for whenever we get to Tenet. I just want the argument, frankly. Oh, yeah, I, I'm just I'm a I'm a I'm a uh, provoker now. Well, we I'm can do that entire guy. podcast backwards and out of order. It's gonna be great. Anyway, I'm down. All right. Well, I think let's, let's just it. get into it. Uh, the way we divide this podcast, basically, we have a few different sections of how we talk about the movie. We're gonna start with what works, uh, why this movie is good. Move into maybe what holds it back, what doesn't work as well. Then we'll have some stray thoughts, and way later we'll be talking, uh, or excuse me, we'll have some essays that Mike and I have each prepared. Uh, let's start with why this movie works. Mike, I have a very disorganized set of notes here. Mm. Part of the reason why is because a lot of why this movie works also kind of doubles as what holds it back. Sure. Uh, there's, I actually wrote that I was like, this is kind of like a two-faced situation where there's a lot of things that on one side is like, that's really amazing. On the other side, you're like, but... On the especially on the fifteenth time I've rewatched it, I thought, "Wow, I'm you know I don't know if I like this so much." Um, but I figure if you're okay with it, I just want to start with, for lack of a better term, the least controversial things, the things yeah, that I think yeah, we'll just yeah. have the most to say about. Um, and with that in mind, we really have to start with the actors, I think. And oh yes, we really need to start with one actor. Um, mm. Obviously, we all know tragically Aaron passed away Eckhart. before the movie. Yeah, Aaron Eckhart. You're right. <laughs> Man, what's Aaron Eckhart doing? It's been a minute. I don't We're know. not starting with Aaron Eckhart. All the love <laughs> in the world to him. We're starting with probably what I wrote is the single most electrifying film performance I may have ever seen. Obviously, yeah. Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. Um, Mike, I wrote if MVP. So like in basketball, MVP, like the whole idea is 
had the biggest impact on their team by being there, right? So, like, theoretically, even a team that doesn't go to the playoffs, you could still be an MVP because you've dramatically lifted their ability, right? Sure. I think by that metric, this might be the MVP for, for excuse me, this might be the MVP performance of all time. Yeah. Along with like Han, along with like Christoph Waltz and Inglorious Bastards. I, I but, put it. I actually wrote next to the same thing. Uh, I put Daniel Day Lewis as Build a Butcher in Gangs of New York because that movie is sure. like yeah, not good, works. and then it's like decent. This one is like great to transcendent. Um, yeah, totally with you. I elevating, totally agree. a truly elevating performance. When I said earlier that I went back to see this movie four times and that we all couldn't stop talking about this movie. I was literally just talking about yeah. Yeah. like it's like yes. it was just it was insane it was it was crazy because I think there's so many factors going into this so first of all the character is just really well written like it's a sure. it's a, such a great conception of the Joker and I would say of the Joker for the 21st century because mm-hmm. you look back and obviously people lose their minds about the 1989 Batman and Nicholson we don't have to rag on it because I think it was very good for that time and has a lot of merit to it but I mean, like, yeah, if you see that now, if you saw that even in 2008, I think a kid would have been like, okay, this is a little, this is a little, this is a little weird. This is a little cheesy. This is, this is kind of whatever this, this performance, this role is somehow terrifying, hysterical. Yeah. Uh, true. Like, like, like thematically fascinating like i'm sure we all had the 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 schoolyard conversations afterwards of like you know this is probably mike's like introduction to anarchy 101 like yeah, sure. you know we all know the we all know the kids that that jumped on on that note also probably did start a lot of really maybe not great uh discourse among among like white males and stuff like that but you know we don't have yeah, to get but to what that doesn't? too much because that might be later <laughs> what doesn't let's be honest i don't know it was just so and, and i have I have more to say. I just don't want to take too much of your too much of your space. Um, I guess one thing I will say because I, I mentioned just the writing of the character and different things like that. I have specific things about the character, but I want to call out like the postmodern slash psychological threat of Joker having three different totally believable oh, origins yes. for himself, and the movie never ever ever hinting at which one the movie is totally unconcerned with which one is quote-unquote true right yeah yeah i can't stress enough that is groundbreaking yeah that is not supposed to be how a tentpole big budget billion dollar action movie in two in you know in 2008 is supposed it's not supposed to do that that is too high concept and it lands and it's amazing and i think those kinds of things are just like you know, we're just operating on a different level now. We're just taking these characters in more psychologically and thematically rich directions. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Know, I have so many notes, but you you go ahead. I've been talking well, for a minute. Yeah, because that, I mean, the origin story, I'm going to touch on that real quick. That yeah. is so jarringly rude in terms of how it turns upside down my liberal sensibilities. Because, like, I think <laughs> everybody, the first time he tells his story, you know, you have at least a moment where you're like, oh, he's a trauma guy's character. He's doing all these bad things because he was so broken, you know, by these abuse. The first one is is his dad, right? Yeah. 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 And then it's really, like the yeah. second time you're like, well, JK, he's just messing with people in a total psychopath. Like, and, yeah. And it's just like, so. <laughs> like, oh, no. It's so upsetting, but it's so good. Um, yeah. Let me talk about the role and then we could talk about Ledger. I think, um, man, the choice to make him grounded is uh, use the word terrifying it is legitimately terrifying 
the scars, the grimy outfits, like his physique is unsettling. Like he looks underfed and just like really weird. He has the fading face paint. Like I know a lot of people point to when he's sitting in the cell in the jailhouse, like you're like, Oh no, this is just a guy wearing makeup. Who's like actually, you know, dangerous. He's, also deranged. in that scene, the, <laughs> right? the the character, just in, in line with what you're saying, in that very scene, I always remember the line where Gordon's talking. He says, you know, we got nothing on him. We have no prints, no identification. Yeah. Uh, all of his clothes don't have any kind of like place they were purchased. Nothing, what does he say? Nothing in his pockets but knives and lint. Yep. It's just like, it's man, great. This is, this is a different level, yeah. And and he's he is definitively not the silly psycho that Jack Nicholson's Joker was. He is the smartest person in every room he's in, and he is chaotic evil incarnate. And the blending of those things together just makes him a fascinating villain. Um, I actually, like, I always remember the scene where he's talking to Batman, where he's talking about morals and, and their code. And I don't know, actually, John, can we just run that clip? You're garbage, you kills for money. Don't talk like one of them, you're not even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak. Like me. They need you right now. When they don't, they'll cast you out. Like a leper. See, their morals, their code. It's a bad joke. You've dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you. When the chips are down, these uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. I mean that that kind of stuff is is wild to hear come out of a a comic book character's mouth. Like that is one really intellectually fascinating in terms of what it's actually saying about the world. But two, it just makes this character terrifying. I mean, he's truly up there. It's like him and and Shigur from No Country. They're these two villains who have this inner monologue and worldview that you as an outside person engaging with them cannot change the direction of at all. No reasoning, no debating, no redirecting. I mean, obviously the burning money scene, he has no clear motivation or uh, motivations, the kind that we usually assign to make sense of evil in this world. None of that is given to us, and it's just amazing. It's just a profound depiction of of what a villain can be in cinema, and I can't gush yeah. about that enough. And that's before I even get to how well they depict the relationship with Batman. Yeah, it's. I mean, it. Well, and man, I feel like we just have to talk about the movie and just you know, because it's just gonna. Keep we just gotta go. I wanted gotta to call shoot, out. Shoot your we shot. just gotta go. We just, we're just gonna go for it because, you know, I, I I was gonna mention earlier too. I think one reason why this movie succeeds and again is maybe also a veiled criticism is the primacy recency thing which is you know if you're unfamiliar primacy recency effect means that you tend to remember the beginning and end of an experience right Mm. you actually tend to filter out the middle yeah um not always but that's just how people usually think so if you make the beginning and end strong then people will probably forget if the middle was weak this movie starts with it starts with the joker And in one of the most breathless introductions I've ever seen, that whole scene is just a mini heat heist that is flawless. 
Um, and again, and also just an incredible introduction of the character. Um, and then the end of the movie, I think we're going to talk about more later, probably, but is also, I think, flawless. It, it wraps up all of these themes. It does all this amazing work. But at the end, I think you also get to this place with the Joker where he doesn't lose in the way that a villain is traditionally supposed to lose. Yeah. And I think that is also a huge part of why this movie works, because by that point, like you said, we've understood the power of this character and the this the the um intellectual kind of rigor to how he's been developed and, and how he's been thematically developed and this whole concept of what he's trying to do of just prove that people are bad essentially prove that people are, are fundamentally evil and in like you know um just a, a push away from madness and you know it would have been really, I guess what I'm trying to say is it would have been really unjust to the character if like a normal comic book movie, they just kind of beat him up and then that was the end. Right? Yeah, there's a CGI and, fight and, and laser beams. Yeah, no. And yeah, and then it's just like, ah, we locked him up and then it's good. This movie is so much smarter than that, right? And and does and does such a better job of, of fleshing out this character. Yeah, I, I don't know. I also want to call out the last scene with him uh, it's also shot incredibly, and I guess we yeah. should mention oh, this whole movie looks incredible. Uh, yeah, well, when he's hanging down, when he's hanging, and the camera over his whole conversation with Batman is slowly rotating, and it's making you feel kind of crazy too, because by the end he's framed as though it's normal, right? Like he's he's normal in the shot, but he's hanging upside down, so all you can see just like you know, it, it just looks disorienting. Yeah. Um, it's touches like that that you're like, this is not just a, this is just an incredibly well-made movie. Yeah. Well, and, it, that, and, it's, and, and that portrayal of that character is incredible. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, I love the point you made about you can't really make him lose like other villains would lose. And, and that's also the power of the film. And it's also the daringness of this movie, which is this film fundamentally recognizes that he can't lose to some degree. Like he can, Yeah. you know, people can be good. And I guess that's a blow to his ego or whatever. But like that scene of him hanging upside down is a, a reminder that one of his goals was just to like highlight that Batman isn't really all that different than the Joker when you get down to it. He's just a fascist who beats up criminals, right? And all these things with the you complete me and don't talk like one of them. You're not, even if you want to be. Like all that stuff is proven true at the end of this movie. And ultimately yeah. he's just holding himself up as a mirror and there is no win or lose when you're that kind of a character. Now obviously that's a incredibly complicated character to depict without like endorsing but at the same time i think more or less they nail it and it makes the end of this film um just elevated to a degree that's hard to even define because it's so unique to the classical hero's journey that you're more likely to see in an iron man or in a a marvel fair so yeah yeah i can't gush enough about the character i feel like before we lose this thread john we have to talk about Heath Ledger himself because yeah, behind that role yeah, yeah. is is this this man, this heartthrob, like you said, this person who was best known up until this point for romantic comedies and then Brokeback Mountain, uh, in which he gives a wonderful performance, but certainly not a deranged One performance. One of my favorite performances of yeah. all time, actually. I, but you're right, yeah. But who saw this coming? I mean, like, no oh my one. God, he is magnetic. It is more than any performance I have ever seen, I cannot look away when he is on the screen. And I don't I don't even mean just because of like 
what he's doing in large ways, like in the action sequences, I mean like in the details of the performance. The laugh, no one has done it better. The physical acting where he's flicking his tongue and it's almost like a snake. It's like a viper, right? Um, the line delivery is stunning. Like the good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Like there's just all these small- Good joker. Touches, I know, thank you. Uh, there's all these small touches <laughs> where you just like, forget it's Heath Ledger. It's it, I think it might be yeah. the first movie I saw where I just forgot someone was acting. And it's just like, this from, is what, the, this is the From Joker. the first second he walks on the screen, you're like, I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's Heath Ledger, but who can, you oh know, I don't even gosh. see it now, right? Yeah. Like, you just don't even see it at all. He disappears into the role. It's a cliche, but it's just true. Yeah, usually um, it's, that's bull crap. This is true. Yeah. Like, this is actually, He's where is Heath Ledger in this role? He's crazy. And there's Ugh. apparently a lot of information. There's a lot out there about, and I, and I didn't, I should have looked up more probably, but there's a lot out there about how he really did throw himself into the yeah. role. Not in a, yeah. not in a cringy way, like a Jared Leto way, but he was just very thoughtful about it. Like he yeah. worked with Nolan. He came up with all of these ideas about the character, like things like um, the little licking thing he does. That was actually, he started doing it because of his makeup, because there was like uncomfortable as it dried mm. out. And so he started trying, like, kind of just moistening it. And then he realized that it was like, oh, that looks amazing. That looks like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm insane. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, what I would <laughs> say is, is there's the, the underrated part of it. Um, maybe it's not even underrated, but the part that I don't hear talked about as much is there's so much charisma you have to have on screen to pull off this role without making people too uncomfortable to keep watching. Yeah. Because it's the opposite, sure. right? You're like, I, I so desperately want to keep watching. I am glued to the screen every second he's on. But I mean, as we saw a few years later with Jared Leto, that can go the exact opposite direction sure. very, very quickly. Where you're like, wow, I hate this. I don't want to watch it anymore. Um, it's just such a, it's, it's a tightrope he's walking, but he makes it look effortless. And he does so much in this movie. He's actually in more of it than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he just never puts a foot wrong at every yeah. single moment the character is being portrayed. I actually, you know, you, you mentioned the the conversation with Batman in the interrogation room. I actually I think the the moment that really like just blew my mind in terms of what this character is doing in this world is the speech he has when or the conversation sort of when he's talking to Harvey Dent yeah. in the hospital, right? Yeah. Uh, which I'll, I'll probably cut in a little bit of that here, too. You, you know what I noticed? Nobody panics when things go according to plan. Even if the plan is horrifying. If tomorrow I tell the press that, like, a gangbanger will get shot, or a truckload of soldiers will be blowing up, nobody panics. Because it's all part of the plan. But when I say that one little old mare will die, well, then everyone loses their minds. Introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. I'm an agent of chaos. Oh, and you know the thing about chaos? It's bare. So yeah, Mike, that moment, like the way that he says, you know, uh, uh, 
introduce a little anarchy. But then he hands the gun, loaded uh, gun, uh, to Harvey Dent and puts it into his forehead. And you're like, I just have never seen a villain like this. I've never seen whatever, you know, gen- no offense to Marvel, but generic Marvel villain number 28 isn't yeah. pulling this number, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I could... I could literally talk probably for an hour about this character. Real, really quick, actually, you said like the comparisons with Batman and this character. One of those little, and, and I, I just can't help it. We're gonna have to talk about the thematic elements of the movie just throughout the podcast because there's so many of them. Kind of too many. We'll get to that later. But there's so many of them, and a lot of them are so good. Do you notice that Joker succeeds in destroying the mob where Batman had failed? Yeah, for however many years. It's crazy. I think there's. There's all of these little things like that that you start thinking about thematically and you're like, God, this is this is actually doing some stuff. Because, again, it's kind of getting to this. One of the themes of the movie is escalation. Yeah. And I think that that's getting to this idea of like you might accomplish your goal if you're Batman in this context, but you may not totally understand what's going to happen if you do. Right. A little bit like Pandora's box. Well, and, it, um, and it's also a big theme of the movie. Yeah. So ahead of the 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 conversation of like systemic evil in the sense of like the mob relies on order like the order of our society just as much as the police do right um and the thing that destroys both is just chaos and it's just like hey your laws produce these kind of petty criminals these mobsters right and ultimately yeah of course the batman working on the same playing the same game as the order of essentially society or how it fundamentally works morally cannot get rid of like the side effects of it but something that blows up the disease or blows up the system (laughs) entirely anyways i want to cast him in a positive light because i do not believe the movie's trying to do that but you're right it does like have a very nuanced conversation of like what actually destroys the symptoms of a system and it's just something that ignores the system right and in the darkest way possible and yeah oh yeah mm, mm, oh. oh my god uh, before uh, we go into too dark a territory, one last shout out on Heath Ledger's performance. Yeah. I just want to shout out that when he's in the gala, the fundraising gala, and he gets the champagne and he throws it over his shoulder and then he eats moment, the flower, yeah. is just like one of my favorite small moments in a movie ever. <laughs> it's just so uh, funny. Anyway, <laughs> I was I was maybe gonna mention this later, but really cool little detail. Do you notice that Batman also throws out his champagne without drinking it? Yeah, obviously so for different good. reasons, but. So Low good. Connects. This movie, it's got, it's got layers, man. Layers uh, upon layers. You know, on that note, uh, let's, let's do, let's do a little bit of Bale, huh? A little Christian Bale. Uh, I'm not wearing Huggy uh, Bits. I, I was going to ask you, does Christian Bale, he is in the good part in, in why this movie works. And I want to establish that because I think that the voice thing became kind of a meme. Yeah. And oh, I'm yeah, not going to yeah. say, I'm not going to say here and say it's good, Mike. Okay. I'm no. not going to do that. But we are going to do the rest of the podcast here. in it. I mean, obviously. <laughs> what else can you do? No, 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 it's not, it's not. I think that is the, that is kind of the Achilles heel of the performance and the character. Sure. But I say that like you get over it. I don't know. It doesn't yeah. bother me yeah. that much. Um, it is pretty funny sometimes. Uh, Overall, though, I think he's great. I think that he's he he basically sells it again. He's got a couple emotional moments in this movie that land. I mean, he's Christian Bale. He's an actor. He's yeah. he's, he's solid. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, shout out to smarmy billionaire Bruce Wayne too. Yeah, he's so good at that. Like, like he's the best. I think he's pulling a little bit from American Psycho, even though it's not really the same performance. Just in terms of like, like look and aesthetic and everything. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. He he's uh, Mike. Do you have anything on on our boy on on Christian? We yeah. call him that, right? We're first I, name. I feel like the the voice, like you said, it's a lightning rod for criticism. That's kind of like it is not great, but it's also unwarranted. He's pretty good at physical acting in terms of the action sequences, and he's amazing at Bruce Wayne, like you said. I adore the scene where he crashes Rachel and Dent's dinner. It is classic Bruce <laughs> Wayne. Like, I own the place, and it's just swarmy and gross, and he used that word. But it's great. It's what you want from that. And and he does the, the schizophrenic side of Bruce Wayne and Batman better than any other actor thus far. Sure. So, shout out to my boy. I don't know if I agree. I think I'm, I'm going to give a shout out to Michael Keaton on that. I think Michael Keaton was better at like, I am truly a little bit insane. Like, I, yeah, like, I think sure. that is my one. It's, it's a, it's in the character, not the performance, but I would say that the character in this movie is a little bit too sane for me. If that makes sense. Mm, that makes um, sense. But it's so you're right. This is a great performance. Uh, who else do we got? Maggie Gyllenhaal. Do we need to save that for later? What do you think? No, no, no. Okay. Oh, okay. We can debate I have, this. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely have a lot about that character in yeah. what doesn't work. But you're right. The performance, she I does think, a great yeah. job. She's, or she has a totally good job. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. Her, her friendship chemistry with Bruce is wonderful. Like, I think she does all, she controls all that she can control. She lives in her hula hoop of control and she nails it. And everything else has to do with the stupidity of the script sometimes and some of the things cool. that don't make any sense we'll get to that yeah all right, fair enough but i i agree she has a great job you're right a lot of chemistry with bruce you know what more than uh so much more than holmes holmes yeah yeah more than holmes i forgot her name that's why not enough dawson that's creek in this movie off. not enough dawson creek i've always said it michael kane <laughs> comes back still michael kane in a nolan movie still doing great work i don't want to bury another batman Anyway, it's <laughs> not even from this movie. I don't think. Uh, you tell me you couldn't listen to him read that bandit monologue. I would. Over I mean, yeah, and like over and over again. It's we like, should shout that out because that is actually a great moment. Yeah. And it so does good. get to a theme that I don't think totally fleshes out nope. later. But we'll get to that. What doesn't work? <laughs> but um, I love listening to him talk about it. Love listening to him talk. Speaking of loving listening to love listening to him talk, how about a little Morgan Freeman in there, huh? Yeah, why is he in this uh, movie? I don't know. Morgan <laughs> Freeman just takes checks sometimes. I think he doesn't. It's like no one told him he's good. Like I mean, even I, sometimes his role, he just, like even his character. I'm like, what are what what are you? Why are you here? But he's great. He's, he's Morgan like, Freeman. Yeah, he's kind of like combination. Uh, uh, you know, like the the guy the guy with the computer who's giving support for the superhero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He lives in and, a basement <laughs> and like Q, but also the CEO. I don't, I don't know. He's got a lot going on. Yeah. He's I like this movie. I like when uh, Batman's burning paper files about Batman, which, okay, whatever. We'll ignore that. That yeah, doesn't sure. make any sense. But then like, you know, my man, my man, Morgan Freeman doesn't burn the Batmobile plants. So that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> really missed on that one. In fact, an auditor you know, got it. You bring it. up a great point. I don't, know if, I don't know how solid of a CEO he is. I think maybe he was just nice to Bruce, and Bruce is like, this guy's the CEO. He's in. Um, 
I don't necessarily have any more about the actors. Oh, I do. Come on. Gary Oldman, okay. my man. Our oh, fan I, club. Forgot. I forgot. We just have a shout him out. He has one yeah. of the most befuddling moments in this movie, which we'll talk about later. But he's great. I love Gary Oldman. Um, Aaron Eckhart is just someone I love in everything. He's charismatic. He's charming. He's perfectly likable. If the movie was constructed a little better, I would say that his he doesn't like his character makes more sense than it probably does in, in practice. But I think his character is great in this movie. I do too. I, I just think I there's, some, there's just some issues with uh, pacing. Uh, fair enough. We'll see. We'll um, see. I love how like he is the perfect actor for making it horrifyingly depressing when all this horrible stuff happens to this person. Like yeah. you just like him, and then his face gets burned off, and his girlfriend dies, and that stinks. But um, I think he brings think, that character to life more than it probably should have. You know, slightly under this is one of those things that like th- this context gets lost. But as of that moment, besides the animated series, which is actually really amazing, oh, besides yeah. the animated series, there really hadn't been a good version of Two Face. Ever, sure. right? Like yeah. it, it always like we had, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, the 60s move, the 60s, show, you know, it was just in comics that had it, obviously, but not like in a visual medium. I was pretty psyched when I saw Aaron Eckhart was going to be Harvey Dent, but I I did not believe they were going to cram in the, the Two-Face storyline. Sure. I just thought they wouldn't have time with Joker yeah. and everything, yeah. but they actually made it obviously all integral to each other. Um, and you're right. That is actually such a good storyline. Also underrated. They made him a vigilante, which again is true to the origin of the character, right? Sure. It's if again, <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones, tough, tough moment. Uh, Batman for, I actually love Batman forever because I loved it when I was a kid, but it is not a good movie. And, uh, just like, you know, two Face is just kind of a bad guy, just kind of doing bad guy stuff. And it's like, okay, well, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a really interesting character you know, or just a really faithful and good version of the character. And Aaron Eckhart is perfect for that because he's so just like, he looks like a, a you know, charismatic politician, right? Yeah. He was like, yeah, he's I get so it. dang likable, man. It's just, he's likable. You're like, you're like bummer, bro. That does Um, Like I said, I'm a little bit disorganized so i just kind of have i'm trying to see if i have any other big things to talk about before i just have a little a few a lot of small things to talk about i I think so like i think it's a pretty easy connecting point but like the other thing that always stands out to me and i say it's an easy connecting point because it kind of ties back to the joker because he's the the biggest success of what i'm about to say but this movie is perfectly balanced tonally i mean you already brought up that a little bit but i'm always stunned in the rewatch of this movie how humorous it is like obviously the pencil trick scene with the gangsters is hilarious like there's yeah just some lines that i will never forget like the suit wasn't cheap you would know you bought it it's like one of the funniest burns i've ever heard when he says like do you or the gangsters like do you think you can rip us off and just get away with it and he just goes yeah it's yeah like, it's just so <laughs> that good. actually the whole first scene is great yeah yeah it's really good. And so there's like, it's funny. I mean, even when Bruce is like, uh, he tells Alfred, I'm going to tell everyone it was your idea. There's just some really good comedy in this movie. Yeah. But then it's also a superhero movie that's willing to get really, 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 really dark. And it does not shy away from, honestly, the brutality. Um, I mean, yeah. it has, within the same movie as all those laughs, there is uh, explicit 
depictions of casualties, like when the helicopter crashes, like can cops die? Um, The escape from the police department is just mass violence. They blow up a freaking hospital in this movie, which is actually a perfect uh, combination of both these things I'm talking about tonally. Because the Joker is dressed up like a nurse. And I'm not sure if you remember this in the theater, but the audience is laughing as he's like, oh, this detonator is not working. And he's like, and then it blows up a hospital. And I think that's one of the most brilliant scenes that Nolan's ever made because like he has you roaring with laughter as the most horrifying thing you can imagine takes place in the background, which is so, 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 so cool. And from like an objective standpoint of watching a filmmaker do his thing. Um, So, yeah, the movie's tone is just flawless. It's a flawless blend of these kind of disparate goals for what it wants to draw out of its audience. And then also shout out out to the choice to kill Rachel because Nolan's dead wife fetish aside, that was like a genuinely shocking moment the first time I saw this movie. Like literally up until the point that she dies you expect her to get saved and she does not so shout out to the tone of the movie sorry john you're up no no i'm there and and i i'm i I keep pinning at all this tough stuff to say later about the character which is is still there but you're right i think that that it was like oh there's real stakes in this movie yeah like this is not a again what makes it different from a comic book movie comic books are obsessed with returning to the status quo. This movie does not return to the status quo. Yeah. This movie absolutely leaves you, leaves its characters in a very different state than when they started. Um, which is, I think really meaningful. You're right. I, I think the tone is a great, is, is a great point. I, I would say the through line is that the movie takes itself extremely seriously. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. It still can have fun and it still has jokes, but those it's never, it's never like in the, in the way that a Marvel movie can be a comedy. This is never a comedy and it's never, and it's always, you know, treating itself and its ideas and its characters as though, Oh no, let's take this really seriously. What would this actually look like? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I just totally agree. Uh, have a few big things left to talk about i i want to talk a little bit about uh i kind of want to talk about the scenes but i I think we're going to end up talking about a few different things with this i want to yeah i want to call out if it's okay mike um there's a few scenes i want to call out. i want to call out the action scene essentially right in the middle the truck (sighs) chase Uh, (laughs) which i'm I'm taking from your (laughs) A taking from your tone that you agree is, it is, is one of the greatest action sequences ever made. Period. It, it might be the epitome of Nolan's work in the field, yes. which is saying a oh, lot because Nolan is boy. really good at this. The way, so let's start here. We're and and like let's start here. Like the build up to the scene, right? Oh, there, yes. It's you know when you see the fire truck on fire, when it's that one ascending note that's the Joker's theme, which is an yep. amazing theme. We're gonna talk about. I'm sure yep. we'll mention the music later, but and and for the most part, it's actually silent. There's actually not a score for almost this entire scene. But as they go underground, as the trucks start ramming things, as things start crashing, Joker comes up. The truck says, "Slaughter is the best medicine." <laughs> He's. It's just. I don't know. There's just so many things and. It's just ratcheting up tension, right? It's just yeah. slowly building up. 
moment after moment, Batman gets introduced. The bat, uh, you know, the car gets blown up. The Batmobile gets introduced. They go topside. They cut, you know, they crash the helicopter. They flip the truck. It's just so many elements. It's like a 50, it's 15 minutes. You forget to breathe. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's unbelievable. And of course it ends with everything kind of being wrapped up, but actually not being wrapped up in any way. And you're about to enter the darkest part of the entire movie. I don't, it, it's just staggering. It, it's kind of what I, I think of as like the most virtuosic part of the movie oh, from a yeah. filmmaking perspective. He's just kind of yes. flexing for 15 or 20 minutes. It is. Um, it, it is no doubt yeah. half the budget of the movie, like no <laughs> doubt. But I mean, the, the semi, you, you can't argue that the semi truck flip isn't just one of those. I don't, I don't even know how this is possible in a movie. Yeah. Like moments. It just is. I mean, and of course and, it's real. It's not CGI yeah. in any way. Oh yeah. yeah Cause he's Nolan and he's just going to do his thing. Um, it's a psycho. But man, when that when that the Batmobile is weaving between the poles and the truck and then it it flips the truck and then he goes on the wall and it spins around and it does whatever. I don't even know what it does. It just spins around. He's facing the other way all the way up until his showdown with the Joker where he's spraying the cars out of the way and it's hit me, hit me, hit me. I mean, it's just like you said you're holding your breath. That's exactly what happens. I mean, yeah. apart from when the audience literally cheered when the Batmobile does the reverse on the wall, which it did. Um, yeah, it, it, it's just a masterclass. It's a masterclass in thrilling filmmaking. And and I can't I can't say enough. I also want to briefly shout out what you said, which is that dissonant noise should be talked about, yeah. because if we don't talk about it as just like an overarching thing, I'm going to talk about it in every single scene we bring up. It is yeah. perfect. It is flawless. I often think about it most in the gala scene, which I'm, we might come to in a second. But it's just like every time the Joker shows up, there is no music. It's just that eerie uh, noise playing. And by the time you get to this action sequence, the moment it kicks in, you're like, it's about to go down. Because the film has done such a good job of using that piece of its sound to prep you for this climactic moment halfway through the film. Yeah. Oh, mm, mm. Again, you can just feel the tension ratcheting the entire time. Yeah, that that theme, which also starts the movie, it starts with the tradition or, you know, with the the Batman Begins theme with those like two kind of rhythmic. But unlike the first movie, they don't continue. It just kind of stops. It gets very quiet. And then you hear that slowly ascending note. And of course, that leads into the first scene, which we kind of talked about a little bit already. Um, But yeah, it's just an incredible. it's such a good idea of how to theme that character. If there was a, I actually have, you know, a lot of people who are really into film soundtracks actually kind of have issues with Zimmer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we've he kind of him kicks the, we, we've litigated him a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I think this is one of those like, like genius moments, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like, I'm not going to give this character a quote unquote tra- traditional theme, like a little mel- a little minor theme melody or something. I'm just going to give him one rising note. And, Tamber it in such a way that you're just it's just it's grating and it's it's like really it's off-putting it's and unsettling yeah. and eerie and yeah it's just it's perfect for the character well okay um, so i got a question yeah. for you because you're into music would it have been better though if it was like I think, you know it's funny you say that i'm pretty sure that was the b music that he did have and I see the uh, cut. apparently Nolan just talked him out of it. It was release know, the clown no, cut. <laughs> release the clown cut. We've always said it. Um, oh boy, what Mike? Do you have 
what other scenes do you want to talk? Do you want to just talk about the, the gallows scene real quick? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's yeah. to me, that's the scene other than when he's hanging upside down, which we've already touched on. That mm. is the sequence where he is like, as a director, as a man behind the camera and not like an action sequence or whatever else. But in terms of like spacing and setting and tone and camera cuts, that is one mm. of the best Nolan scenes I've ever seen. Um, it comes in with that noise. The moment he shows up, and the way that the camera spins around the room as they're having this conversation, as he's telling the second story about his scars, which I touched on, is making you go through like a, a mental kind of existential crisis about this character. Like the entire time it's doing that and zoning in on these two people is just a masterclass intention. It is so disorienting. Yeah. It's so stressful. You feel anxiety building the entire scene and so much of that is actually through how he's using the camera more than almost anything else don't get me wrong the performances yeah. at the center of it are flawless and the writing is flawless and the music is flawless but he's doing so much with simple camera tr well not simple they're actually very complicated and shooting a, a a scene without many cuts at least in that conversation but shooting a scene in which not much is happening right it feels yeah. like there's a lot happening and it feels like dread is building um it's just great it's just great. Actually, I think for the most part, after he comes out of the elevator and does the champagne glass, I, I think that's all one cut, right? It's just following uh, him around the room it, and then it starts spinning around him. I mean, there are probably there cuts, are but very it looks long like, shots. But yeah, yeah I, I, I would say uh, from what I remember, they're very long shots, but it does cut. But it holds yeah. shots for a really long time. It's so such I, a, it, it which is, is so different than yeah. the rest of the movie. Other than, again, until you get to the swinging scene in which you have a long cut. Um, other than that, the movie generally does not have a lot of long shots. And, and so that scene no. is just so good. So, so actually so good, so this good. isn't a scene, so it's not worth talking about, but another long shot and um, another just, you know, icon like this, this moment is actually iconic, but after the, the whole, like basically after the Joker detonates, you know, the, the most, the, the biggest part of his plan, the night that, uh, Rachel dies and all of that stuff when he's escaping in the cop car. Oh, yeah. And he's hanging Top out the window. Dude. Yeah, with the, and it just goes silent. There is I think a, everyone um, remembers that scene, right? Everyone remembers that shot, I should say. Yeah. There is a argument on Reddit that that should have been the final shot of the movie and they should have made it a two-part movie and I have never agreed with anything more in my entire life. Like, if you want to make I, I, this into yeah. a real Empire Strikes Back moment bam movie ends with him hanging out his, his head out the window like a dog after blowing up the police and oh killing rachel just oh my god it would have been too dark because I, I think the movie needed to end in a slightly more upbeat moment than that but i'm not going to disagree i think like yeah. you could you know th that is also a cool part of the movie's construction that you actually can kind of you know distinguish the first act of the movie from the second act of the movie or not even act the first half from the second half and that is like basically that moment is at the edge of like okay everything's just changed basically everything yeah. changes halfway through the movie yeah um yeah. which like generally speaking the construction of the movie i do just want to this is kind of just an aside but i just want to mention that the whole idea of how at the beginning of the movie joker is not actually the main antagonist yet he's sort of a side story out i i kind of forgot this until i rewatched sure. the movie but he's kind of in the background a little bit. We, the audience, are following him, but he's not that much on Batman's radar yet. And they even Batman even says, like, one person or the whole mob, the Joker can wait. 
And yep. then basically by halfway through the movie, it's like, no, this has completely changed. Like this Mistake. whole the entire stakes of what we're, yeah, has just completely flipped. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's incredible. Um, did you want to talk about any other scenes specifically or move on? I just got a couple shout outs. I mean, uh, um, yeah, yeah, go for it. The pencil scene, we already shouted that out. That's another one that just killed the audience, uh, in theaters and it still holds up. It's great. Um, the interrogation, We've already talked about bits of that just flawless. Another great directing scene. And then the escape. Yeah. It's just those those ones are just like, holy crap. It, it, yeah. It's unbelievable. So, yeah, I think that that covers it on my end. Awesome. Well, Mike, I, I basically only have like, you know, everything else of why I love this movie is that it's just a very thematically rich movie. It just has a lot going on. Um, I can just kind of, it's okay. So I can just kind of start talking about the themes and maybe get some of your feedback. I do want to call out before I start doing that, that this movie actually has a lot of themes and there's a actually kind of a negative side to that that we'll get to yeah. later, but yeah. there's kind of a spaghetti on the wall approach to sure. thematic ideas in this movie. So yeah. there's some themes that we will talk about later that definitely are not developed and kind of don't go anywhere. Sort of like, why did we end up talking about this? But having said that, there's also a lot of really interesting ideas in the movie. I think the biggest one and the one that most people latch onto and the one that kind of seals the deal in terms of the end of the movie is this idea of not being the hero, not necessarily being the thing that's needed. Right. And this is threaded throughout the whole movie. I think like the famous line everyone remembers is when Harvey Dent says you either die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. There's this, there's this running idea in the movie of like, what does it actually mean to be the good guy? Right. Cause this is Batman is purportedly a character who's here for the good of Gotham. And at the beginning of the movie, from Batman's perspective, that means I beat up people, I, and like I end the mob. And then halfway through the movie, he decides, well, maybe I don't even need to exist to be the good guy. Maybe Batman shouldn't exist because Dent is the better version of that. Like the idea of having this savior who does everything by the law, by the books, who's strong-minded and smart and intelligent and does everything right like that is the version of a hero that everyone needs but then by the end of the movie having this more holistic understanding of the entire idea because basically he arrives at this point of oh i can be the hero by doing whatever i have to do to keep things or, or, or to make people believe that they can be good i think is what i would interpret it sure. as saying yeah. right of like cuz by the end he's hit with this with this you know terrible decision of well what do we do because if when things when it cuts out about what harvey's become everyone will know like okay well so joker's right like you know we're everyone you know we took there is no legitimate way to save this city and i don't know like in a way i just described the movie so like whatever but that's a pretty rich thematic idea and i think is the one that that resonated with people most i think because it's just the one that I've heard people talk about the most, right? Like outside sure. of movie circles. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have anything on that. That that that's the one that I think is, is most at the forefront to me. 
Yeah, I think it's 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 strong, and it is one of the most I think in your face in, in not I don't want to say clear, but most um, intentional themes that it's trying to like really unpack outside of the Joker character, which has his own litany of them. Um, but it is kind of like a refutation of nihilism in some really interesting ways too. Um, sure. I think it's also at the same time strangely the most half baked at the end, and, and or not fully hmm. baked through. And I actually never would have said that until I saw the most recent Batman movie. And I'm not going to spoil that movie because we're not talking about it. But they go through a similar kind of debate and they kind of get to that point by having Batman realize that, like, essentially violence isn't the only thing he can do. And that there is, like, a way to give back to your community and help people um, in terms of the person in front of you charitably and, like, making making yourself a symbol of like a different kind of change, right? In a different oh, time so of boring, opposition. Though. Come I know, on. I know. But I feel like that's in a way where he's Nolan's trying to go in some ways and never quite just gets there all the way. Um, I think, cause I think sure. you would agree. I think they both, both films have a similar sensibility when it comes to what that heroic theme is trying to get um, the average person to realize about themselves and how they act in the world. Right. And how symbols push us to um, engage the world in a different way in terms of what we think it means to engage it heroically. So anyways, I'm babbling. Can I be, but, can I be honest with you that yeah. like, I am just a sucker for like, this is true. I am a sucker for a superhero story where the hero is called to sacrifice their, yeah. or has to sacrifice their hero status. You're big in, in the atonement right theology. <laughs> I've always said it. I've, I've always been, uh, this actually is a spoiler. Oh, so maybe I can't even say it. Because if I even say the movie, I'm going to... It is a recent movie. Oh, what a nightmare. Okay, spoilers sure. for recent Marvel movies. I'll say that as a general one. And then more specifically, if you're still listening, I'm sorry, spoiler for the most recent Spider-Man movie, that that ends in a relatively similar way where the character yeah. is like, I just cannot be a hero. Like I have to give up the hero status in order to do the right thing. Yeah. That movie has some issues, but like I said, that is always so intriguing to me because it's the one thing that you you'd usually don't see in superhero movies that usually it's like, Oh, they have to quote unquote sacrifice like their lives or something, but who cares about that? Sacrificing yeah. your name is actually pretty tough to imagine. Right. It and is. Yeah. I think that that's why that's very intriguing to me from that perspective. It is. That, that's very it, it, rich to me. It's very rich. I, I completely agree. The final scene of him riding off on the bike is it's always, I still hits. get goosebumps at that. I gotta yeah, be real. I can't fret. I still get. He, yeah. He can carry it, right? And that's that is a yeah. a uh, slightly fascist, but mostly powerful. Thing. I'm just kidding. Um, but, For real, uh, your movie's got some issues with movie's got some issues with fascism elsewhere. It actually is not uh, related to this theme. Uh, we will talk about that in the next section. Um, but yeah, no. Nah. And I think I think relatedly to what you're getting at, it goes back to the boldness of Nolan in this film. Which it's it's a really bold thing to do to make Batman's central conflict to be like existential. I mean, yeah. essentially, the, again, the Joker acts as a mirror, so he can't win or lose other than how he makes Batman wrestle with himself and whether he's mm. like basically this ongoing existential crisis of like, am I even good if I'm doing what I'm doing? And should I yeah. be doing it? Like, what you already said, that's that's incredibly bold as a central uh, plot arc in terms of the hero's journey you're going to send your character on. Very, uh, very opaque compared to most yeah. uh, Mar Marvel movies in particular. I totally agree. 
what do you got? Do you, do you have any of the uh, thematic exercises of the movies that or of the movie? I, I just say that. I just wrote that the entire monologue between the Joker and Dent about not panicking when things go according to plan, even though they're horrifying, is some real shit. Um, that is yeah. like it is the reminder that at the center of this movie is a character that literally challenges the worth of everything we value in our world, like everything. Mm. His central premise is that like it's like a, a anarchist version of Ecclesiastes. It's like, hey, everything you yeah. think is important and has to be protected is meaningless. And I'm going to yeah. show it yeah, in the most horrifying way. And I think there's something really, really challenging about that character philosophically because of that. Sure. Right. Because um, he's right. Like that entire monologue, you're just like, well, that's a little too close to home. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, it's kind of the moral subjectivity of that and what order leads us to um, kind of dualistically identify as good versus bad or as or i think of what he's getting at acceptable versus unacceptable for civilized society yeah. just yeah. a really challenging theme to throw into the middle of a superhero movie and one that i don't think necessarily everyone watching reckoned with totally no um <laughs> that's but, a real again that's some real shit dude that's like <laughs> it's also really interesting how and, and this is why I keep coming back to this just because, again, I, the, the, the character had never been done justice in this way before. I also just think it's so cool how that that anarchy side of the character dovetails so nicely into Harvey Dent's character. Right. Because Harvey Dent yeah. has to arrive at this point where he says, I believe that chance is the most fair way of looking at yeah. punishment in this world. And if I just say that out loud, it's like, well, what what are you doing? Like, that's just nonsense. But you kind of accept that the character will get there after his conversation with the Joker at that moment in the in the hospital room, right? You accept that yeah. given all this information and given this perspective, he would kind of reach that perspective, um, which I don't agree with. But again, it presents it in a way that I'm like, but I actually do kind of accept that he's going to get there, that that's going to be where how he looks at this. One last point on this too, that I, I think this also is crystallized so great. And again, people are going to say it's a little cheesy, but I still, I love, we already said, I love that last little speech from Gordon in the last, like, you know, three minutes, three or four minutes of the movie. There's this little thing. I never, I don't think I noticed quite the first time, which is that in that last kind of scene, we, we cut to dent, um, excuse me, to Gordon giving the eulogy for dent. And he says, he was a hero, not the hero Gotham deserved, but the one it needed. But then when he's quote unquote eulogizing Batman, he's not eulogizing him, but you know, as Batman's running away. Yeah. Gordon says he's the hero we deserve, but not the one we need right now. And mm. the idea of like Gotham secretly has a good soul, but to beat back the chaos that's kind of tearing the city apart, you have to obscure that momentarily. You have to, you know, kind of let people have the fairy tale version of the world because the other version, they they just can't handle, at least at this moment, at this crucial intersection. That's fascinating. It is in is also not strictly speaking good. Like he like there there's an argument that's pretty good that I that Dark Knight Rises like barely starts and then just gives up <laughs> for no for no obvious reason. You know, do you remember what I'm talking about? Like, yes, yes. Dark yes, Knight yes, Rises yes. literally this comes up in a conversation of like, hey, that was maybe not a good decision. Yeah. Uh, and then we just move on. It was like, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, but it is an interesting thing, and and it I'm is. I'm I'm 
incredibly fascinated by the idea. I don't know if we necessarily want to dive into it too much or if you have any thoughts, but no, you're uh, a fascist. But I yeah, get it. yeah, okay, okay, good, good to know, good to know. And that even kind of reminds me, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea also of how Batman is motivated. We kind of touched on this a little bit, but what exactly Batman is motivated by in this movie? I think one of the one of the one of those little little moments that is actually so critical to the story and i'm i've been surprised to find a lot of people missed i don't know if you've had this experience mike but a lot of people i talk to miss the fact that joker gives batman the wrong uh addresses for rachel and harvey that's the best part yeah and it's such a critical moment in the movie because i think that there's this question about the motivation of batman that's happening throughout the movie right because he has this inner he has this kind of dual desire he wants to save gotham but he also wants to be with rachel and he wants to have this world where he gets to you know not have to do his batman stuff and he gets to like you know just just be with this person that he loves and the fact that they keep putting him into these situations where that is being tested to the absolute limit and it culminates with him losing Rachel and then still having to stick by his principles. This is all pretty straightforward, but I think like the critical moment for this is actually when he's driving at Joker and Joker so badly wants him to just run him over and Batman really wants to run him over and then he can't. And he has to, and as he's yelling, he has to just dodge him and fall into the street. Like we all get it, but I, I just, that is so crystallizing all of these conflicting motivations of the character, right? Mm, yeah. And I think, yeah, no, I, I just think that's just really interestingly, that's just really well done, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and I don't really yeah. have much to add. It, it, it just, it just is. I mean, it, and there's something really interesting too about like, you know, I'm going to talk about chaos in my essay, so I won't get into this too much. But you're right, he keeps having to make a choice, and I think a lot of us live in a worldview where if we make the right choices enough times, things will work out. And it's just really interesting that ultimately the choice he keeps making, which is Rachel over Batman ultimately gets taken from him. It gets stolen. Like the guy just tells him the wrong address and he still makes the choice to save Rachel. And it doesn't matter because ultimately a guy decided to lie to him uh, in a small moment and it's gone. So there's like something really interesting too. again, tying all these together about just the, the chaos of it all. And that this world isn't as ordered and as fair and as just and all these things as, as as the Batman would want it to be. And ultimately, you could still make a the right, quote-unquote, right choice and end up in the wrong place. And, and what does it mean to be Batman in that world in which it's so disordered yeah. and chaotic and paradoxical? So, I don't know. I'm with you. I think it's just a really interesting direction to take the character in. Absolutely. Um, I'm just going to say it. I like the little fairy scene morality play, okay? I feel like, yeah, no, that's, I think that's everyone. Everyone decided that they were out on this in the I last don't hate 10 it. years. I don't hate it. I think it gets, it gets over, over. I accept, I accept, <laughs> I accept. Cause I think this is the criticism, right? The setup is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. A, B, people are ever, you know, it's a little melodramatic. Um, It's actually really melodramatic. I kind of forgot that rewatching. And C, I think people 
are just convinced that that would never actually happen that way. That sure. there is no universe in which both of I will accept the first two points. I will accept yeah, that yeah, the setup yeah. is insane and that it's melodramatic. I actually think there's a certain amount of cynicism though with people out here. Oh, just like, yeah, well, of course that would never play out. I'm like, I don't know. Like maybe, but I'm, but whatever. That's the point of the movie is that like, how do you think that would play out? Like, you know, you're perfectly able to say, I think obviously they would kill each other, but I'll just look at you with kind of a side eye and think, okay, well, I guess that person just doesn't believe in the good of humanity. I don't know. I don't know. I'm still there for it. I, 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 I'm perfectly willing to accept that people can be that good in that moment. Yeah, and, and I think yeah. it's not a flaw that the movie is optimistic in that sense, I guess. No, is what no. I would say. That, that you're just generally throwing out what the movie's trying to say. And it's weird that that movie gets the lightning rod of that because it's saying that in a lot of other scenes too. So if you're cynical about the, the, the take it has on human decency and like human heroism, then you hate the whole film. Um, yeah, that's, that's not the, the only scene <laughs> saturated with that, that theme. That's ridiculous. Um, I think for me, everything you stated about the, the kind of absurdity of the scene or the improbability <laughs> of it mechanically wow, makes sense. Come on. It has a weird, um, uh, well, we'll get into the invasive governmental stuff later, but that, ah. that part of it, like the ex machina bit of like, I can see whatever, sonar that's pretty dumb so here i'll just i'm just gonna read you what i wrote i said yeah yeah it's an interesting philosophical concept embodied in a scene actually pretty decently and debo from friday saying i'm gonna do what you should have done 10 20 minutes ago is a legit scene that slaps really hard but yeah. the actual details and mechanics of the scene should not be thought about for any length of time, lest you actually understand the nonsense that is taking place. <laughs> well, Mike, I actually think that's as good a segue as Eddie into uh, why this movie doesn't work. What maybe, you know, what maybe holds this movie back. Um, mm. There's a lot of nitpicky <laughs> things, but I want to start because you basically just said it. I want to just start by saying if you think like 15 minutes about almost any of the plot points of this movie, they complete, no. they fall apart so completely. It's actually stunning. I think yeah. within a year of seeing this movie, I'd already like, and to be, to be totally clear, we bring this up all the time, but this is like the ultimate example of that little paradigm I mentioned of yeah. a plot hole is only a plot hole in the movie. I don't think this movie is too bad in terms of plot holes. In sure. terms of, I was there every second of watching this movie. And I think most people will be, right? Like if you haven't seen this movie, when you watch it, you're not going to, you're not going to like check out in the middle of it. Cause you're like, wait a second. Did he really time this so that this could happen at the same time as that happens at the same time as that? You don't ask that question when you're watching it, so it's fine. But, like, are you really telling me that Joker knew? Oh, my God. That Joker knew that uh, they were going to leave to get Dead and Rachel, that they were going to be gone that he was going to have Lyle there that he was going to be locked up with that other criminal and be able to call him to blow up the place that also happened to be where Lyle was so then he can go get Lyle and then escape and also no one's there because they've all gone to get that because and but also wait a second that's not even he has to have that point that plan enacted from before the point that Gordon has revealed that he's not dead which is also stupid we'll get to that later um 
Also, knowing that he's going to be captured. Also, knowing that Batman isn't dead, even though Batman is... Like, you start kind of chasing the threads back and realizing there is no way, there is absolutely no way that this character could have actually planned any of the things that happened in this movie. Every single one of them falls apart horrifically. And it's not bad. It's, It's not... I don't know. I still struggle saying it's bad because I'm like, again, in the movie, you're fine. But it's just it's it's stunning how much none of it makes any sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Actually, the fairies is a great one, too, just because it's like, wait, are you telling me? Are you seriously telling me no one noticed that there was like it looks like hundreds of gallons of of gasoline rigged up with explosives on a boat? <laughs> On so. two, on the only two fairies running. <laughs> also, when we know he's pushing everyone to the fairies because he threatened all the other modes, it's just ridiculous. It doesn't yeah, make I, any sense. I Mike. also like don't think too long about why they're evacuating the criminals anyway. Oh like, my god! Why it's, are yeah. they even moving them from Ark? Where are they going anyway? There's literally <laughs> a throwaway line. Gordon says, "Whatever Joker's doing, I bet he's got plans for those guys. I want them off." Yeah, so like, we're gonna put them on a boat do we, with three we, prison guards like what are do we, we know doing that? like do we know that's what's happening is this the best call is gordon a good police officer no. so so yeah this movie let's just get yeah, this just out of the go. way yeah let's just, let's let's just, just get go. this yeah. out of the way we have to get this one out of the way it's a small detail but it's the stupidest part of the movie commissioner gordon faking his death even from his wife question mark yeah whatever well, yeah and what? then hiding yeah. as a driver in the truck that's transporting it is is literally the most like that is straight up a plot hole. I did it in the theater. I was like, wait, what? Like, why? Yeah. Uh, when he tells you, know what's funny? The- My theater cheered when Gordon yeah, was revealed, yeah. so I think we were all still there. But no, so was yeah, I. No, I, I mean, I mean, yeah. literally, when he's like, I couldn't tell you. I had to place it close to the uh, vest, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, from your wife, like, yeah. what is, and your son, <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> um, just a plan that doesn't make any any sense. I think I, I told you before. I t- told John before we started recording that I kept having flashbacks of the parted on this rewatch, and it and that's kind of more what it is. I agree with you. Most yeah. of the problems with this movie are not plot holes. I did not catch them the first second time I saw them. It probably took me a while of deconstruction before I really thought about it. And I actually remember being kind of annoyed when people were poking holes in the Joker's plan, and I still kind of am because I don't really care. Yeah, fair honestly. Enough. Um, I'm just like, those scenes are great. It's super fun. It sets up some pretty great Joker monologues. I don't, I really don't care. I guess I do not feel that way about pretty much the entire Chinese business becoming the central bank of the mob plot line. Um, Literally everything involving the Chinese corporations in Laos is insane, stupid, absurd. And what the hell? Um, way too long and way too long way too central to the plot if you think about the movie as just being batman versus the mob and that's how the joker gets input into all this the movie still works just fine so it's also just like not necessary um yeah i got a couple things i'm just gonna i'm just gonna shoot my shots john let's just just go for it yeah 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 Yeah, first to put it simply do we really think the mobsters would be cool with a foreign national moving all of their money out of their bank accounts into a foreign bank without asking i'm I'm going to give it no. I actually do have a refutation of that. It's a small one. Okay. But they do well, we'll say in the movie. Oh, real quick. Real quick. They do say in the movie that 
the mob has been pushed so hard by Gordon and Batman and Dent that they've resorted to like they're they're they're, they're basically at their last state their last resort. Listen, like, John, John, I don't I don't know many Chechen mobsters who feed people to dogs. But Listen. the ones I do, the ones I do know, the Chechen mobsters who feed people the dogs that I do know, um, don't like it when people take their money without asking. Hey, I'm so, trying here, okay? I'm trying. I'm giving I'm the benefit like, of the doubt. When he's like, "I've already done that for you," and everyone's just like, "Oh, okay, neat." I'm just like, I just don't, I just don't know if that's the response I would expect. Um, which they try to make it seem like they would have that response because they intercut it with them, the police raiding the banks. But that's happening uh, supposedly after this has happened. Anyway, whatever. Or during yeah, it, so who knows. More importantly, we can move off that one. Everything that happens in China is absolutely stupid. Yeah. Batman yeah. kidnaps a leader of what they tell us is the largest corporation in China, illegally extradites him by a World War II skyhook, yeah. and then they yeah. leave him on the police station doorsteps and this is considered fair game by our justice system who then tries him anyway despite all of this being lunacy oh and then also someone has to explain what the rico act is which i get is exposition writing but it's also stupid in the scene where someone's I want you like to know, rico <laughs> I, I did write this is obviously nitpicking but the idea of a da explaining rico cases to the yes. head of gotham's major crimes unit is is totally bonkers is like excuse me that's not how that would work. God, Gordon does know what a Rico case is. That's not makes sense. Uh, I also had a stray thought that I guess I can just move up here. Of can you just imagine the the international po yes. uh, political ramifications if Batman just gets shot? And it's like American billionaire like assaults a Chinese national in Hong Kong. It's like what are we doing here? What? This is crazy. Um, <laughs> We're kind of just having fun, so as long as we're having fun, fun. The thumbprint thing is oh, CSI yes. is what I wrote is CSI level like technologic technology. It is, like dumb. it is two people typing on the same laptop to hack yeah. better levels of stupid. It is unreal how ridiculous the idea is that he gets the he gets the ballistics from the spent round. But then also, like, that part, you're like, okay, I, I guess, whatever. But then he's like, there's the thumbprint from when he pushed it into the thing. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> what? Uh, it's tough. It's, it's yeah. tough. And, and you um, can just throw throw in the sonar vision into the same technological nonsense of this movie. The sonar um, vision is tough. Yeah. It, it's, it's, also, it's, I also hate how it looks visually, but it also doesn't make sense scientifically. I actually don't mind the look visually because I like the blue. Uh, yeah. I like the blue fire kind of thing. So we'll okay. disagree on that. I, cool. I, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, You're dumb. you don't appreciate aesthetics. That's okay. <laughs> You're um, dumb. I think here, this is kind of a big one, but I don't know if we'll have too much to say on it. This movie is too long. This oh, movie yeah. is really long. It's Literally really long. The entire and there's last a lot thing, you I'm can cut you. out. Yeah, you can yeah. cut out the entire Hong Kong sequence. The entire Lao character probably. You can cut out um a lot of the middle of the movie in general just to be honest like yeah uh, it really feels like the movie it's funny you said earlier that there's kind of almost like this you could almost end the movie after like like joker escapes from in, from the major crimes unit um by the way uh, a side note 
they keep saying MCU in the movie for Major Crimes Unit, and it's like weird every time now because. Oh of Marvel, yeah, I didn't right? even think about that. That does make sense. I, I, yeah, every time they say it, I'm like MCU. Oh yeah, Mar- Major Crimes Unit, not Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but like, it, I rewatching the movie now, and to be fair, I've rewatched this movie too much objectively. Okay. Yeah. But like the second half of the movie can get a little bit exhausting until you get to the last, the last like few scenes because yeah, it yeah. is just a little bit like, Oh my God, this is so long and so dark. And it, it loses a little bit of momentum. I think after Joker escapes from the, the major crimes unit. Um, yeah, it's just too long It is way too long of a movie. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Are we okay? I mean, everyone liked the line, but when back, <laughs> When Joker says a little fight in you and the bat, I like that. And the Batman says, you're going to love me. So first of all, are we okay with, with Batman just out of nowhere? Like, so, like, cause he's next to Joker. Okay. And like the yeah. camera doesn't see him. So we're surprised, but the whole room of other people, the entirety of Joker's peripheral vision, all of the other like bad guys, in the room no one saw batman until that moment you're telling me this he's just he's, he's just like bats he, are stealthy They're he's just sneaky. like the undertaker coming out of nowhere with a chair just like <sighs> yeah i don't get it i don't get yeah. it like yeah it's not great it. not great um <laughs> the one also, concern, i actually am willing to be shotgun yeah. but whatever because he's so also cause he, he takes he's the shotgun because he's anti-violence mike can't you tell um I actually could be, you could disagree with this because you said something earlier that you liked this, but I actually don't, I'm I'm really over, and I was even over at the time, the whole hero doesn't want to be the hero anymore plot, um, uh-huh. which in this movie resolves really quickly, but there definitely is like a like 20 minute stretch where it's like, I can't be Batman anymore. I got it, you know, and I'm burnt, blah, blah, blah. And I was just kind of like, yeah, I get it. Like, that's just an extremely common trope in superhero movies. Yeah. Spider-Man 2 had done this like two years earlier or something like it just comes up a I, lot and I was just sort I, of over it. I just think this movie does that in a more nuanced way. It's not like, oh, I want to live a normal life. There there is bits of that. It's a lot more like it does. My, is my existence good? Like, I think the Joker in particular as a villain engages that. In See, more that nuance, question is interesting, but. but you're right. I think that's better yeah. illustrated by the Joker character pushing yeah. Batman. Rather yeah. than him just being like, oh, you know, I shouldn't be Batman anymore. It's like, okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, Boo-hoo. Boo-hoo, rich boy. Let's talk, Mike. Let's talk women. Women are not uh, super well represented in this super movie. super well written in Nolan mm. movies. Historically he's, you know, he's a noted writer of dead wives. Uh, Rachel is essentially the only meaningful female character. Uh-huh. Uh Spends half the movie being well, nothing don't forget, but a, Don't forget oh, Gordon's oh. wife who forgives him immediately for lying about his death. I'm sorry. You're right. I'm sorry. You're, you, you got me about that. <laughs> for uh, so for yeah, convincing so his five-year-old second... son that he's dead. She's just like, I'm mad, but I'm okay now. I'm over it. <laughs> but we're good. And then we hug him. And then we're all good, Mike. And then she literally never the, comes up in the movie. I would be on the couch for, for a while, John. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Like a long time, like for <laughs> probably forever. Probably <laughs> yeah, divorce. Divorce would be on the table. No, no doubt. No doubt. Um, Rachel spends like half the movie being nothing but a love interest or damsel in distress. Let's just say it. 
she doesn't have almost any real yeah. point in this movie. Yeah. I mean, she technically does stuff like she's around as things are happening. But if you really think about it from a plot perspective, she doesn't make any decisions. She doesn't actually like purposeful. Yeah. Like she doesn't have agency. Um, she has to and wrestle she between some hot boys. So, you know. That's hard. And then you're right. So I'm I'm sorry. I should have added that. So she's a love interest. A damsel in distress wrestles between two hot boys, uh, and then gets killed. Yeah. That's that. That is that is women in the Dark Knight. Um. Yep. That's a little tough. Don't love that. Also, like, can we just call out Bruce Wayne still like simping for Rachel? Uh, is just like kind of juvenile and not that. In- and like, I can accept it's interesting if part of the point is that he is like somehow like he is his crazy part of his like insanity is he is still hung up on literally like his childhood sweetheart who is also obviously in love with someone else is like, I I don't know from me watching. I was just like a little bit of emotional maturity wouldn't be totally unreasonable. Batman, like maybe that's the point of the character, but I don't think the movie's trying to make that argument. Right. Nah. Like I, I, I think the movie views this as legitimate, but if you really think about it, it's like, you really need to move on, buddy. Like, this is not like, you know, you really should yeah, have read the yeah, room. Yeah. You shouldn't need you know, her to write a letter a, saying, Hey, we're good. And I'm a, I'm a pastor. So I do a lot of counseling and you know, everyone has at least one red flag, but, uh, um, psychotically beating up criminals in a bat suit every night I'm, is like probably the biggest red flag. If like, you know, a, a parishioner came to me and said, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, marrying this guy, giving giving up my entire life to be with this guy. Just one weird thing. Um, he beats up criminals in a bat suit every night. I, you know, I don't know. I would say that's uh, probably not the maturity you're looking for in a husband. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I would tend to think that's true. I'm not I'm not a counselor, Mike, so I don't I, I can't speak to it. But that does make sense to me. Um, last thing on Rachel, and this is now pretty small, but um my least one of my least favorite movie tropes is attractive smart woman tries to talk sense into her handsome rakish uh boyfriend and he stops her by kissing her mid-sentence yeah uh, i just really like i just really dislike that moment and you didn't like I, it in star wars I, did you i i actually didn't like it star wars was exactly what i was thinking of and i was like <laughs> i kind of didn't like it in star wars either um so yeah just never liked that just Fair. always always not a fan uh but yeah tough tough times uh we're still we're kind of balancing between bigger things and smaller things where are we on the color commentary guy in the swat truck driving harvey through gotham oh uh, it's horrible mr <laughs> i didn't sign up for this i hope you got oh, some moves guy what I, that's I what a- I'm, he sees that he sees we need some air support that's what i'm talking about it's yeah. just I, I don't know what i have no idea what that character is doing i don't know what that I've- character is in this movie i don't know who thought who added that note i don't know what's going on <sighs> I mean, it's why Nolan shouldn't write his own movies, quite frankly. Um, he should do, like, the storyboarding and then let someone else write dialogue because that's the definition of you can show me and not tell me, bro. Um, yeah. You can show me air support's coming and that they're excited about that without someone being like, heck yeah, air support! You know, it's just, like, so wildly obnoxious. I hate it. Yeah. And uh, I actually have a couple other notes like that for the straight thoughts. Yeah, yeah, so I'm going to leave them. No, oh, no, I'm going to wait for okay, straight okay, thoughts. Yeah, yeah, There's you, a, you, yeah. There are a couple of moments like that that are just dumb where someone says something and you're like and you're just like why did you tell me that (laughs) that was unnecessary Uh, i have one small thing and one kind of bigger thing that we probably won't have too much to say about but 
The small thing is apparently because of the interrogation scene, they like had to totally redesign the bath suit because they were like, it's going to be under bright lights, which it was never supposed to originally be. Mm. Um, personally, still doesn't land for me. Looks real dumb nah. in that yeah. whole scene. Just just looks like like giant forehead is the problem, right? Like let's I'm not say, wearing just, hockey pads. <laughs> I'm not wearing hockey pads. I think mine's better than yours. I'm going to say it. That's that's fine. I'm not um, upset about that. This is the, this is the quote unquote big one, but again, I just don't think we're going to have that much to say. There's too many themes in this movie. Like yeah. it actually it 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 plays and this is a Nolan thing. Nolan does this, so it's like whatever. Yeah. But it just introduces a lot of things that kind of end up getting buried or just aren't really fleshed out. I think the worst one is that there's there's some sort of discourse about 2000s era surveillance tactics. Yeah, and I'm and not it entirely sounds crazy sure that when I say it that way, but negative. I think the movie is talking about that, right? <laughs> yeah. Because it's that's the whole Bush. like, yeah, because that's the whole burning down the forest thing. I get that, and and. That's yeah. the, the, the sonar thing and like Lucius Fox like is like, I'm not about this. So he's like, well, I need to find yeah. this man, but we'll destroy it after that. It's either. Uh, here's the problem, Mike, is that it's either a really bad take because it's either like, hey, you know what? Mass surveillance oh, is worth it if you capture one is. bad guy um, <laughs> or it's just so incoherent that it doesn't even like register. That's just like, I, I just don't what? even know what you were trying to say. This is another straight thought that I'll just throw out there, and that is yeah, Nolan me. being Nolan being a fan of Bush era post nine eleven invasive governmental spying on its own citizens. It's a weird take. It's a um, it's a little weird. It's a I find weird. it impossible to engage this theme as anything less than like, hey, after nine eleven we had to do some things, uh, but we should stop that eventually once we get the guy. Um, it's just like I, I, maybe he is trying to like be more nuanced than that, but that's what it comes across as, and it's a weird thing to just randomly throw into your movie. So yeah, there you go. It's so weird. There's other themes too that I think it left on the on the cutting room floor. That's the biggest one that I always think about. Of like, why is this even in this movie? I just I just don't understand. Yeah. Um, that's actually all I got, Mike. Anything else for why this movie doesn't work? No. Um, other no. than the fact that I find myself on rewatches just waiting for the next Joker scene, nothing. That is true. It's yeah. it's a banger. I did actually have on why this doesn't work. I've seen this movie too many times, which is kind of what, yeah. what you're saying. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, essentially, every scene that doesn't have Joker or action is like pretty rough. Gordon's first meeting with Harvey Dent, I forgot about. I'm like, oh wow, this is super boring. Um, yeah, the 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 dinner with Harvey Dent, and yeah, I don't know, I'm just out of I'm just out of yeah, yeah. Uh, in 20 years, I'll come back and be there. I think we can just move on then. Um, this next section is just kind of stray thoughts. It's exactly what it sounds like. Mike and I each have a few stray thoughts from this movie. Uh, I'll start, Mike, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Uh, Mike, worse hang. <laughs> Joker, Heath Ledger's Joker. Or Llewellyn Davis. What do you got? Oh, um, I mean, you already know your answer. This is like asking a question that you know the answer to. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm, yeah. You know, you're always at risk of dying, uh, okay. selling out yeah. your morality, I, I, I murdering somebody. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But boy, whenever you're riding with the Joker, you're always in for something new, a new experience. Um, you're always in for some excitement. Uh, you're not going to stay in jail. So that's, that's cool. True. You know what? You that's a great point. 
And You're not going to live as, very long, just to be clear. Yeah, but neither is Lewin Davis, so <laughs> not okay. too sure about okay, that. Good, good take. Um, good, good pull. Yeah, he's just a sad sack. <laughs> and the Joker, he's got some spice in his life. So Joker wins by a mile. Joker wins by a, by a mile. Not even close. Yeah. Well, Davis or Batman? Last one. I won't. I won't push it too much. I kind of feel like Batman sucks to <laughs> that, hang out with. I'm just gonna say. Yeah. It. I don't Not think Bruce Wayne. Get... I'd hang out with Bruce Wayne all day. But I, Batman? Uh, would you? <laughs> I don't know. I think <laughs> both think are so? kind of the worst. Oh yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not gonna answer because I don't want to be honest and say Lou and Davis wants one. So I'm gonna abstain because you already gave me one and you don't get to give me two. <laughs> I can't disagree. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we talked about dumb exposition. I said, thank God Christopher Nolan wrote into his script the Scarecrow saying, that's not him, when the fake Batman wannabe <laughs> starts shooting at the Chechen mobsters. I didn't realize, Christopher Nolan. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm so surprised you didn't include the follow-up, because once the Batmobile comes in, he actually, I believe, says, doesn't he say that's more like it? Or something. Oh like yeah. That? yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he yeah. identifies both the fake Batman and the real Batman in actual lines of dialogue. I did say out loud in the theater. Obvious. Oh, I get it now. So I mean, oh yeah, right. dang, oh you got me. Um, this might be like colored by just my age or something. I feel like this is my next right thought. I feel like this came out in just a real real big moment for violence in PG-13 movies. Yeah. Like that was, because this was around the time of like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which were pretty stunningly sure. violent. Like lots of people die in very horrific ways. This movie is kind of shocking to me. It's PG-13. Like technically there's not blood and not yeah. cursing and sex, but in every other way, this is so violent. I just forget that every yeah. time. Like, from the pencil thing from the we didn't talk about it, but the scene where he gives like the second um joker or maybe i think it's the first joker origin story with gambit when he has the yeah the knife uh, in his mouth my straight thoughts yeah go ahead what's your straight thought then let's just hit it um it's always bugged me that the joker has the knife in the guy's mouth and then uh the guy dies after he cuts his kind of doesn't open. make sense but i, I <laughs> yeah. think it's part of the violence thing like because they couldn't yeah, even yeah, show yeah. him getting cut but I'm like they couldn't sure you know that in the original cut he cuts his cheek and then like slits his throat or something but there like, we instead got it just looks like he cuts bit. his cheek and the guy's like i'm dead uh. it is a pretty it is a pretty cool editing thing because like you're on the edge of your seat the whole time but if you remember when he actually like i guess stabs the guy or something we're looking at one of his subordinates yeah. And the only reason we know it happens is cuz there's a music stab when he, a, he looks over his and shoulder and then the guy yeah, yeah 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 it's so great. i mean you know it's a great moment but yeah also a uh, a cell phone bomb gets sewn into a homeless person's chest i hate maybe. that i so. cut that out of my straight thoughts but i hated that yeah. oh my god so let's that it's is, pretty that awful pretty violent. um shout out to batman forever because i'm pretty sure we're never gonna do it on this podcast so i just kind of want to no. sneak one in um in one of the most truly stupid moments in all of film history two-face flips a coin over and over oh, again no. to get the result he wants because oh, he's trying to kill God. Batman. And so I just dumb. can't stress enough how like dumb that is and how like not accurate to the character it is and how it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so yeah. just, you know, special, special shout out. Just love that movie. And it's a weird thing to call out given that I love that movie, but you got to realize Mike, I've been holding that in 
for uh, essentially my whole life for 28 years or something since I first. Yeah, saw that movie. it's it's my least favorite comic book movie moment probably ever. Yeah, not even kidding. Uh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, but yeah. great movie. I, I high recommendation. Val Kilmer yeah. is a good Batman. I'm, I'm going to say it. People yeah, sleep sure, on Val Kilmer as Batman. People Anyways. sleep on Val Kilmer for everything, but that anyway. is true. Not going to disagree. Okay, yeah. my next one is uh, who on earth would buy drugs from the Scarecrow? Got some, got some questions. <laughs> Feel like uh, they deserved whatever they got because that guy wears a bag over his face and uh, is a psychopath. So, yeah, it is. The it Chechens. is weird. You, you the think Chechen like, mob this doesn't got some questions? I'm not, and I'm not like a master of economics, but something about this seems like it doesn't work out. Where it's like, yeah. They're going to start selling drugs that make people have horrific nightmares and like do that as a successful business. I just don't, I just don't I see got, the connection. I, I got right? questions. I got questions. Yeah. Um, the dead guy in the Batman costume hitting the glass during the mayor's speech is oh, a jump scare. It's a jump scare that gets me like every single time. And yeah, even when I know too. it's coming and I, I kind of yep. inwardly tense up, it's still because it's like completely out of nowhere. Everything is calm. The music is like, forget. you forget. I don't forget because it freaks time. me out so much, but it still freaks me out. It's yeah. tough. It's a great moment, but we didn't call out. I Sorry. This is now, I guess I'm just going to add to my straight thoughts. We didn't call out earlier. I'm talking about great scenes. Uh, the, the handheld Joker interrogating that guy, like on the news. Yep. Didn't like that. Is like crazy terrifying. Like yeah, the way he yeah. says, look at me. Uh, yeah. I like was the, like again chills through the whole theater everyone's like oh yep. we were having some fun yep. with this guy but this guy is not fun <laughs> no nope, not ooh. a fun clown <laughs> not a fun clown i don't think um the assassination plot on harvey dent is the laziest assassination plot i've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's why did you really, think this would work really phoned in that one yeah yeah not not good um i don't have anything to say because i just agree yeah. Apparently, Joker clapping when Gordon was is appointed commissioner was an ad lib on set by uh, Ledger. Oh, I can see that. Uh, which it. is a great a great ad lib. And it's such a good laugh too. It's like the floppy in yeah. front of him laugh. It's so weird. It's like yeah. so weird. It's just anyway, yeah. It's unsettling. Um, unanswerable question right here. Yeah. What was Alfred doing in Burma, and how did he become a manservant? Uh, he was part of the British. Um, just looking for jewel thieves. You know, something about the timing of that doesn't make sense, does it? No. If don't this think movie about it. took place in like the 60s or 70s, he could be. But yeah, wait a second. That doesn't also, make any is, sense at he, all, does it? What is he doing with this family? It's just weird. It's just a. It's like Parasite. The movie Parasite is about Alfred. <laughs> I'd watch that. I'd be in. Yeah. Speaking of Alfred. Uh, this might even be a bigger question than Stray Thoughts. I don't know. Where are we on Alfred choosing not to reveal to Bruce that Rachel was not, in fact, holding a candle for him? Interesting like on a, you On say. a manipulation scale, one to ten. Yeah. Like, Interesting yeah. you ask that because my next Stray Thought is Alfred not telling Bruce that Rachel was going to dump his ass is straight cold-blooded. <laughs> yeah, I, I was wondering because I, I anticipated you would not be a fan, actually, just based on other yeah. conversations. Well, I mean, it's I also, I get it. It's... I mean, it's, it's manipulative, kinda, but whatever. It's kind of weird that in the next movie, he's like, "I all I want from my life is for you to not be Batman so I can watch you drink coffee in Italy. 
So it's also just like kind of a weird motivation thing where it's like in this movie, he's like, I'm just going to manipulate. I think you that has a... more to do with. Uh, and actually, if I can. Sorry, I know this is an interruption, but just real this quick. So because we this, no, no, <laughs> we on. never talked about. We haven't talked about this yet, but a really key big thing about this movie um, is that he did actually have a sequel in mind. Yeah, that he sure. didn't make and that we have no idea what it was going to be. Because he yeah. said he just totally scrapped it once Ledger died. That he was like, I just yep. couldn't figure it out and decided just not to do it. Um, so you do wonder. Because there are things like that that are, I agree with you are huge character changes. That I'm like, I don't know if that was always going to be like that. Um, I don't want to bury another Batman. <laughs> Good Michael Caine. Good Michael Caine. Uh, five out of ten. Five out of ten. Was that your was that your whole thought? Uh, uh, I thought Yeah, that was my next thought. Sorry. I, I thought you were I you thought I interrupted you. You were you no, were no, still no, talking. I'm, I'm done. Michael Caine is a manipulator. He is a gaslighter. He is a monster. Well, not the act, not, like, not even Alfred, the actor. The I was going to say man. you said Michael Caine, not Alfred. Uh, <laughs> I miss it. <laughs> well, fair enough. I I I I think it's kind of interesting. Um yeah, uh, it's probably too big a conversation. So we'll just move on. Uh, yeah, sure. Lucius Fox says spying on 30 million people isn't part of my job description. Gotham City is 30 million people? That would be the second biggest city on Earth behind Tokyo. Sure. That's like why not? What? No, that's that's huge. That's New York maybe he, State. Maybe, that's maybe like he was bigger. spying on some other cities too. I don't know. Why would no? I don't get it. I <laughs> like just, Pittsburgh. I want answers, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. I just wanted to call that out. Like he just he just very casually throws out thirty million people, and I'm just like, that is a staggering number. So let's be fair. We've already pointed out that Lucius Fox is not good with details or numbers. Okay. Um. So Did maybe he just out? got it wrong. He should check That's wiki. Tough beat speaks. for Lucius Fox on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, yeah. I uh, I got two more. So listen. I'm I'm all for the Batman doesn't murder thing, but when he mm. smashes the garbage truck into the ceiling of the tunnel with the Batmobile, he definitely murdered that guy. Yeah, that guy's like, dead. That guy's yeah. dead. Was, He's nah. just dead. <laughs> it was like, what? Well, that's not true. You just killed that guy. Um, and it wasn't even like an accident. Like, he intentionally does that. <laughs> anyway. So this is my last one. One of my favorite fan theories that I've, I've read like once and haven't seen reproduced anywhere else. Uh, Colin Reese is very obviously the Nolanverse version of Riddler slash kind of an homage to Riddler. But you have Mr. Reese, Mr. Reese, obviously. You have the fact that he does like, this one's kind of hard to explain, but if you watch the scene where he confronts Lucius Fox, he's making like Jim Carrey Riddler mannerisms, like really obviously, like the facial expressions, like all the little mannerisms he's doing. Shout out to that actor. I have no idea who that guy is. Um, but that's kind of a cool moment, and, and like I just think it's like a cool little homage. There's little things like that in these movies well, yeah. that are pretty smart, actually. And and of course, he is also uh, he knows Batman's identity, which is another yeah. key part. He, of the And he worked yeah. out Batman's identity. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, so. it works. Yep, it's a cool little moment. Yep. Uh, two final things, both related to Harvey Dent's stay in the hospital. First, yeah. I have serious questions on why Bruce Wayne would leave. Uh, Harvey's coin next to his hospital bed. It's like, hey, here's an idea. I'm going to let Harvey come out of his pain-induced delirium with his horrifying physical condition 
Uh, I'm going to deal with that by making it worse, by leaving him to discover alone in a hospital room that his fiance is dead. Yeah, that is just a strange a wild choice. decision. <laughs> just a that strange is... way to break that news, Bruce Wayne. <laughs> but... Are we kind of pointing out that, like, you know, Batman is also responsible for Harvey Dent on yeah. some level? Oh, here yeah. A There's bit. a way yeah. that you could have done that without that much psychological damage. And yeah. then, you know, this has been pointed out on Reddit, on another podcast, the Rewatchable shout out. Um, it, this is not a new thought, but I laugh every single time. When Harvey wakes up to the Joker, but doesn't react to him being the Joker until the Joker takes off his little hospital mask. <laughs> and then suddenly he's like, oh, my God, it's the Joker. That <laughs> it is, is an amazing. Go movie. go on YouTube. Look up the scene. It's hilarious. Like he literally is just like, oh, a nurse is here. And then the Joker takes off the face mask and he's like, oh, you. It's great. <laughs> uh, shout out to the Joker's uh, get up too. great, great, great job from him. Uh. I think that's it. We did it. it. Uh, Stick around after the break. We're going to talk about, uh, or we're going to have some essays that we've each prepared. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, In this part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared an essay diving deeper into some element of the movie. Uh, Mike, I think I'm going to go first, if that's okay. That's okay. Sounds good. Here we go. So six months ago, I turned 30 years old. Along with that, of course, there comes some level of existential crisis, life reevaluation, all of the usual. To be honest, I actually found the whole thing a little bit anticlimactic. It turns out that being 30 feels remarkably similar to being 29, So far, the only real change has been that people in their early or mid-20s kind of regard me as a messenger from the other side of the veil of death. Their eyes widen when they find out I'm 30 and they look me over as if wondering if my material form will last or if I'm going to be swept up into ashes. Again, besides that, hasn't been too big of a deal. 30 years old is kind of an arbitrary milestone when you get down to it. The truth is, though, that I have noticed a few things that have changed in my life, Maybe not since turning 30 specifically, but at least in the last few years. No change has hit me harder than the difficulty I've had in finding and engaging with new music. Music for the first 25 years of my life was probably the art form that I cared most about without really any competition. I was obsessed with the music that I listened to. The first thing I did pretty much every day in my early 20s was log on to reddit.com slash r slash indie heads and stereogum.com. Both of them, I would pour over new reviews, new lists, new discussions. I would uh, pour over announcements. I followed all of the acts I cared about. I kept up with what was new and exciting. And I generally just devoted a staggering amount of thought and energy to listening and thinking about music. But that started to change at some point. I started visiting those sites every few days rather than every day. I started skipping must-listen new releases. I started being surprised that a band I liked had released a new album. And what's even stranger, finding that I wasn't really interested in listening to it. My culture attention seemed to have shifted. At some point, I realized I hadn't really listened to any new albums released in the past four or five years. And at that exact moment, I felt the sensation of being stuck, like some strange, 
anti-motivating force was holding me back. To put it another way, my perception of music, of all music, was so tied to what I used to love that I didn't feel like there was room in my brain to accept anything new. It felt like I was only able to listen to stuff that I had already enjoyed, that I had already grown to love. And in thinking more about this and kind of judging my own listening habits and experiences, I wondered if maybe there was some kind of shared experience, some way I could classify how great works of art impact our relationship with a particular medium, in the same way that my relationship with albums changed my relationship with music in general. And in thinking more about this and judging my own listening habits and experiences, I wondered if maybe there was some kind of shared experience here, some way to classify how great works of art impact our relationship with a particular medium, but then maybe hold us back from experiencing more of it, in the same way that I related to these related my music experience with these albums, but then at some point couldn't understand music without those albums. So I put together three broad categories to capture some of this idea of how we relate to art that impacts us and the medium that that art uses. First, I think we all encounter what I'm calling formative works of art. These are the things that introduce us to a particular medium. It's usually the first song or movie or album or book or TV show that you can remember. In a weird way, we seldom perform any kind of serious judgment or analysis or critique of these works that are so formative to us, and we also tend to only revisit them for nostalgic value. The funny thing about formative works is that they really don't have to be all that good or culturally important. If I try to think of my formative movies, on the one hand, I can think of some truly excellent films, Back to the Future, Star Wars, for example. But my formative movies also include Twister and The Pagemaster, two movies that I will defend to the death, but will also admit in moments of weakness may actually be kind of not very good movies. Of course, since I didn't have anything to compare them to, all of these movies were wildly exciting to me. And that's the point. These were the introduction to the medium of film. I didn't have anything to compare them to when I first saw them. When I asked my dad, by the way, about the earliest movies he could recall having seen as a kid and having any kind of impact on them, he gave me Herbie the Love Bug and a John Wayne movie called Hellfighters. No disrespect to Herbie or to Mr. Wayne, but I would venture that neither of those movies had much of a monumental cultural impact. After the formative works, we tend to coast by on whatever is popular or normal in our friend group until we encounter what I call breakthrough works. These are the works of art that, to put it simply, completely blow our minds, that change entirely what we had thought that medium was even capable of. In contrast with the formative works, breakthrough works tend to have a much more prominent cultural impact, whether they're highly acclaimed, incredibly popular, technically innovative, or some combination of the three, part of what makes these albums, songs, or movies feel so transcendent is that they really are challenging the cultural norms of the medium. For my dad, Star Wars was his key breakthrough movie. He, along with millions and millions of other people, had their entire conception of what movies could do challenged and transcended by that one 
movie. For me, I, I could actually think of three breakthrough movies. Um, the Lord of the Rings, which is kind of three movies, but I'm counting as one. Goodfellas, and maybe most of all, The Dark Knight. At this point, Mike and I have gone on and on about the impact and the merits of The Dark Knight, but for the purposes of this essay, the key thing to note is that I, Jonathan, had not experienced a movie like this ever. In a shallow sense, I had seen things aesthetically similar, but I had never encountered something that was so decisive. But I had never encountered something that so decisively exceeded my expectations, not just of what this kind of movie could be, but of what all movies could be. It was exciting and thought-provoking and tragic and fun. It was a spectacle that made me think. It just did everything. And dutifully, I kept buying tickets over and over again when it was in theaters. I got the DVD and I rewatched it over and over at home. I just couldn't experience this movie enough. And the key thing is, there's a universe where that is exactly where my growth in understanding film and movies ended. Not to say I might have not seen any other movies, but I might not have seen any other movies and given them enough slack to change my expectations in the way The Dark Knight did. This is actually something that happens all the time with everyone, with lots of cultural things. The fact is most of us don't have time or energy to keep developing our understanding of a medium, to keep being challenged and rechallenged in terms of what movies or music or TV shows are capable of. That's not a bad thing in and of itself, but it does mean that a lot of people, without necessarily knowing it, are stuck in their relationship with a medium, exactly the way I felt stuck in terms of music. I'd had my formative musical works, which I have to confess were probably DC Talk and Joy to the World, and I'd had my breakthrough musical works, Radiohead's Kid A, Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, but after that, I found it difficult to accept things that weren't retreading the same ground. Intellectually, I could find new music interesting, but personally, I just didn't want to listen to it. Even when it felt stale and old, I could not seem to stop myself from putting on the same albums again and again. I want to reemphasize that this is not in and of itself a bad thing. Again, not everyone has the desire to keep up their development in a given artistic medium. But I did wonder, why did I find it so hard to move on in music? What stopped me from doing that? Thinking back to The Dark Knight, to my own breakthrough movies that became the litmus test for all of my future movie-going experience, experiences, I think that the answer lies in what kinds of expectations we let those breakthrough, transcendent experiences create for ourselves in that medium going forward. To ask it another way, are you actually open to something challenging what you've accepted to be the pinnacle of the form you're engaging with? Or are you more interested in something conjuring up the memory of transcendence from those breakthrough works? In the context of music, I found this difficult because I'd invested so much into those sounds and styles and themes and aesthetics that they became difficult to separate from the impact the music had had on me. It was difficult to accept new music because my brain's first question was, do I recognize in this any of the elements of the works that had such an important, dramatic impact on me? And if the answer was no, I just couldn't seem to accept it. 
I had formed the false expectation that only music which had the exact same effect on me was music that was worth engaging with. On the other hand, I never had that relationship with movies. While I still love The Dark Knight and still find it difficult to not compare new movies to that small collection of breakthrough works that mean so much to me, I think that, ironically, by caring about movies less than music, I opened myself up to be able to experience new, transcendent films that did not in any way resemble those first transcendent experiences that I had. And the key was, though truthfully I was just sort of lucky that this happened, the key was that I didn't need a new movie to too closely resemble what had once been so critical to me. I didn't hold the expectation that a new work had to act upon me in the same way as those old works did. So while The Dark Knight had such a big impact on my understanding of film, it does not have to be the last time a movie changes how I think about movie. And that idea of continuing to develop the nuance of my understanding of movies makes me excited to continue to dive into the medium in the years to come. Uh, John, I have one thought, and that is, uh, I'm not wearing hockey pads. Okay. okay. Right. Yeah. No, 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 no. I really, I really enjoyed that, and it's funny. You know, I'm, I'm a big basketball fan, which we've talked about a lot, and the, mm-hmm. the thing that came to mind is like how wildly frozen in place people get with um, conversation. Like my least favorite conversation about basketball, but conversations about the goat like the greatest of all time, yeah. right? Yeah. And it, yeah, and it, yeah. Especially with Jordan, but it's just kind of like um, a boomer thing probably there, you know, boomers, which by the way, as a 30 year old, hello, hello, boomer. Welcome. Welcome to, yeah. I think that's how that works. <laughs> we're, um, as you get it, we're, we're, we're in this. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So like people watch Jordan, he was amazing and he, and he changed the game and it blew people's minds. And, and it's a, it's astounding how like, you know, my friend group has this running joke of you'll never be Jordan. We say that about anytime anyone compliments any <laughs> other player. We're like, yeah, but you'll never be Jordan because that's literally how Jordan fans sound. It's like it doesn't matter how good any new player is or even like in the case of LeBron James, how wildly different of a player aesthetically and skill wise he is. He just immediately gets compared to Jordan and it will never be Jordan. And that's the end of the conversation in their mind in and it, it's just wild because what you watch is that in an effort to protect what Jordan meant to them as like this thing that impacted them, you'll watch them literally not enjoy something as beautiful as a, a player like LeBron's style of play or like yeah. how fascinatingly fun he is as a unique player in history who is incomparable to Michael Jordan in the first place. And it's all about protecting that first initial love or first initial like canonical player that they grew up with and what what drives me crazy about that is how often i do it too one that drives me crazy is i see it in myself i'll do that with there will be blood and these other um canonical movies for me but two you just want to like shake the person and be like just appreciate this player for who they are in this moment and like just enjoy the game like enjoy it for what it is in this era that has very little commonalities with the other era with this player who has very little commonalities and like get, get out of just like your ranking 
and your experience in the past and just accept this for what it is in the present. Um, and cause that's what the barrier is, right? It's like, you're talking about with movies. Yeah. The barrier is that I don't get to experience this new thing for its own value in terms of its message and what it is. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting kind of like scaffold to what you're talking about of how often we as humans seem to do what you're talking about with everything. But yet the value well, of, of seeing that and deconstructing it and trying to engage things on their own terms in the present. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a great example. And it was actually very forefront as I was thinking about these kinds of ideas, not necessarily in basketball, but it, it's, it's so I, I've been struck a lot lately with actually the generational side to this too, sure. because like you think about movies, right. And, and as I've gotten into, um, you know, I, I have a pretty wide taste in terms of decades that I, I can go back and have a lot of movies I love going back to, I guess, maybe the 50s or 60s. I'm not that much of a movie nerd that once you get before 1970, I'm, it's a little tough. But, but you know, I, 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 I can survey a lot of these things, but it's always so strange to me to see people to see people move on from things, right? To, yeah. to watch as it's like something that was so critical to a whole generation you know 60 years later is just oh yeah that's a good movie i think right yeah and it's like well why is that happening is the the movie change obviously not but to that whole second generation basically it's so fascinating to me how something to one generation is breakthrough but to the next generation is formative mm. and yeah the way that to my dad star wars defined like or changed how he viewed movies and was thus the litmus test for every new movie. To me, it was just what a movie was. It was formative. It was just, yeah. this is what a movie is, I guess. And it's important to me and it, it did all that, but it wasn't the work that I was going to compare every new thing I saw to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it yeah. was just the first thing I saw. It didn't change how I, how I perceived movies. And I'm, and again, like, you know, we've already been talking about, it, but, I'm fascinated about it because of exactly what you're saying. Because again, you know, I, I kept saying this in the essay, but it's not bad to not, or it's not bad to get stuck in, you know, that that system because you can't do that with everything, right? Yeah. Like, you know, my 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 dad is never really gonna move on from '70s uh, rock, classic rock, and that's okay. Like, I don't, you know, he doesn't. That's not something he's passionate about, or needs to be passionate about or needs to know anything about but there is this other side of the coin um no, no pun intended but there is this other side of the coin in terms of being able to acknowledge that there is exciting new things being made and that the only reason why those often i think the only reason why those things may not feel as exciting is because you're unfairly comparing them to these yeah. works that changed how you viewed the medium but they only did that because of the stage in life you were in yeah right um so i guess that's why i'm fascinated about it and i'm i'm trying to get better about the things i care about like music and like movies being able to explore and still accept those new things on their own terms yeah and not bring in all this baggage of well a movie that changes my perspective of movies has to do xyz you know yeah, I have a I have a hot take on that, and I think I've told Give you it. this before off the mic. Yeah, but I I truly believe this phenomenon um, 
and this is hard tangent audience, I apologize, but I truly believe this phenomenon is related to our fear of death. And there's just sure. this, this idea that this thing that was important to me, we have to eventually confront the fact that time moves on and it stops being as central to culture and it stops being as important and it stops being the pinnacle of, of the medium like you're talking about. And there's yeah. just something so harrowing about realizing that this thing that changed my life is going to fade in time like I am, like everything is, right? Yeah. And that fear of our impermanence and the impermanence of the things we love just leads us to latch onto it. And we start essentially blaming the next generation for not not getting it. You all unquote. don't understand. Yeah. 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 And, and, and again, that's pretty heavy and pretty dark, but... As with all things, when it comes to the fear of impermanence, the answer is is acceptance. Once I accept that mm -hmm. this thing is something that I enjoyed and it will pass like everything and it will not mean the same thing to the people after me or the generation after me, then I can just appreciate it for what it, it meant to my life and still find the value in the new thing that's coming. And, and that's what we're dancing around. That's what we're talking about. But I do think it, it's an interesting, <laughs> again, it's a dark connecting point. But I do think they're all related. It's all about this terror of the impermanent instead of accepting yeah. reality as it is and letting these things move and evolve and have value in their own right with each change in each moment of of, of newness that's inevitably going to come because that's the nature of our reality. It's funny that this didn't come up explicitly in my essay because it's, it's such a better tie to the actual topic we're talking about. But, you know this has been on my mind because there is maybe a sense where culturally we're moving on from a lot of things that for a long time dominated culture and that I was so connected to. And I, I very specifically remember seeing on a Reddit thread for the newest Batman movie. What's it called again? Um, the Batman, the Batman. Yeah. Jeez. The Batman, um, which I think is a great movie, but you know, I saw in a thread, someone say like something about how, Oh, well, like, I remember thinking ever, like, this was such a lame thing in the dark night, but here it's like really cool. Like, I, I remember some little thing that Batman does or something. And I, it was like just this crystallizing moment of, oh, people are going to move on from this. Yeah. Like, they will, you know, this movie that to me is kind of untouchable. Like, well, if, if someone, if it's not that breakthrough work for someone, then they'll start poking holes in it and yeah. they'll be like, oh, okay, well, it's just a movie. And you're right. I think like that is you're, you're confronting the fact that time just moves yeah. and that culture just moves. And um, you're also right. that I think a lot of people's impulse is to lock down and mine is too. like, don't get me wrong. My, my, I wanted to respond to the guy like, you don't understand what this was like yeah, when it came yeah, out. The yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. Blah, blah. But the, I think from a spiritual exercise perspective, it's like, you know, you're right. On the one hand, there's an acceptance and there's a letting go. I think it's also really cool because there's the realization that there's a opportunity within that, right? Like yeah. that doesn't have to be a negative thing because on the other side of the, on the other side, you could say like, I get to keep experiencing new things. If, I, yeah. if I'm able to reach that point where I can accept things on their own terms and I don't need them to change my whole perspective in the way that those early works did, you know, I, I can, I can keep experiencing exciting new things as I keep getting older. There doesn't have to be a stopping point to that. Yeah. Um, and there's something beautiful about that. That's what that's that's how I want to exist in relationship with art and with other people, actually.
So my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Job, which is certainly the strangest and darkest book in the biblical canon. To get why, you actually need to understand a different book, the book of Proverbs. You see, Proverbs upholds a worldview defined pretty much purely by black and white decision-making formulas. For example, work hard and you'll succeed. Live rightly, you'll be blessed, etc. Which people adore. I mean, people love the book of Proverbs. It's a comfortable worldview where we are the masters of our destiny and the good life comes by following the right rules, which, again, we love. Simple, clear formulas let us live without overthinking decisions. They provide immense comfort of control and sure things that we can trust to navigate our world, which is also what makes Job so unsettling. Because in essence, it contradicts this worldview entirely. What Job is, is a fairy tale-esque thought exercise, where a fictional Prince Charming named Job, who follows all the Proverbs and thus should only receive blessing in this formulaic worldview, actually suffers immensely, due to no fault of his own and without ever knowing why. And what ultimately this setup does is it prepares us to dive into the brunt of the book, which is a long debate about the nature of suffering almost as a direct refutation of Proverbs. It's this long book comprised of dense theological poems, most of which are intentionally wrong. And in doing so, what we see is that Job wrestles with this part of our reality where we experience the truth of life in a complex world. That is the moments where Proverbs fails us how in this world we can live healthily, but still get sick. We can work hard, but still fail. We can love, but still get hurt. Job reckons with how in this universe, good formulas of the Proverbs may increase our chances for success, but simultaneously, this is a place that's too complex for sure rules that work every time. It reminds us that we live in a complex universe where things happen outside of our control, and there are tragedies that will upend the soundest Proverbs. Simply put, in the wisdom tradition, if Proverbs says, be wise and things will go well for you, then Job responds, well, let me tell you about a man who did everything right and still lost everything. Forcing us to grapple with the hardest questions if suffering can be undeserved, then what does that say about our universe and what it means to live within it wisely? And that's already fascinating enough. But what really captures my imagination when it comes to Job is that for most of it, God remains silent. Job's and his friends debate the nature of suffering, even accuse God and, and call God to court. And he just doesn't speak for the vast majority of the book. And when God finally does speak, he neither explains the why of suffering, nor addresses the singular points raised by Job and his friends. Instead, what we find is that God speaks in these three odd, bizarre poems that essentially take Job on a tour of the entire infinite cosmos. First, God lays out the ordered, beautiful elements of our vast universe, the ways that it actually does operate in ordered, ways, even if they transcend our finite comprehension. 
He looks at the galaxies, the oceans, the mountains, even the tiniest wonders of biology that seem to follow the same paths and reproduce themselves. Next, after that, God essentially rejects that the universe should be operated by black and white justice. Because if it did operate with a micromanager view of justice, good things happen and they get blessed immediately, bad things happen and they get cursed immediately, well, nothing would be able to change or grow. There'd be no life. It would be a program, a simulation, not a place of relationship. But this is where it gets really interesting. And that is in the final poem, God shows Job the behemoth and Leviathan, two mythical beasts that symbolize chaos in Israel's surrounding cultures, highlighting that these two untamable beasts, these unpredictable chaotic elements of our universe are still to some degree loose in our cosmos. He upholds them, to, shows them to Job, and tells Job that these are simply things that must be accepted as part of reality as it is. And all combined, what this mysterious response does, what this tour offers, is what I think is a beautiful, complex image of our universe as the space that is so paradoxical, this space that's both ordered and simultaneously touched by realities that though neither evil nor malicious are still chaotic, wild, and at times dangerous. And in doing so, Job invites us into what I think is a profound realization. He invites us to realize that true wisdom for navigating such a complex universe requires a level of nuance, mystery, and humility to go along with the time-tested, comfortable formulas of wisdom. This recognition that both order and chaos must be accepted as part of this universe and these cosmos, that both must be reckoned with if we are ever to navigate life with real wisdom. And perhaps unsurprisingly, it's that complex vision of our universe that comes to mind whenever I sit with the dark night. The Joker, a modern-day behemoth and leviathan, embodies these dangerous, formula-shattering aspects of chaos and disorder embedded in our universe that we so desperately try to avoid in our daily lives. The Joker rejects the motivations we apply to chaotic evil in attempting to give framework of reason to its disorder. This force that cannot be reasoned or bargained with, one who laughs at our human tools of reason, order, and control, and just wants to watch the world born. A force wrestled with by Batman and Dent. Figures that are essentially stand-ins for ourselves. Figures clinging to the Proverbs worldview. People who rely upon clear rules. All these if X then Y sure formulas that they think will save them from the chaos of our world. People who despite seeking to do good are confronted by the disorder inevitably baked into it and suffer greatly as a result people who through their confrontation with Bohemian and Leviathan have to watch as their formulas fail and their black and white worldview is upended. It's just the central confrontation of the movie, one that is embodied in one of the great modern monologues of cinema. You know, I don't want there to be any hard feelings between us, Harvey. When you and uh, Rachel! Rachel! Rachel were being abducted. I was sitting in Gordon's cage. No, I, I didn't rig those charges. Your man, your plan. 
Do I really look like a guy with a plan? You know what I am? I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. You know, I just do things. The mob has plans. The cops have plans. Gordon's got plans. You know, they're schemers. Schemers trying to control their little worlds. I'm not a schemer. I try to show the schemers how pathetic their attempts to control things really are. So, when I say, uh, come here, when I say that you and your girlfriend was nothing personal, you know that I'm telling the truth. I mean, this monologue is just so profound, and it cuts to the core of this theme in the movie. Accepting and determining how we will respond to this inevitable confrontation of reality is the crux of the Dark Knight. And it gives us a number of different responses. Dent is crushed by the paradox of suffering. As chaos upends his worldview, he breaks. And as we've already discussed, he states, the world is cruel and the only morality is chance. Then on the other hand, we see that this response to suffering is contrasted with characters who wrestle with it and are ultimately changed by their confrontation with reality. Whether that be Batman embracing a more morally gray vision of himself and what it means to be a hero or the prisoners who in light of chaos still choose to do good in the moment without assurance of success or blessing the film barrages us with diverse responses to the paradox of order and chaos coexisting and how that impacts us and then with that the movie simply ends without clear resolution like job raising profound questions but offering few clear answers, leaving us with the Joker's cackling laugh, only promising us that this conflict will continue forever. And though that may feel unsatisfying to some, I believe it's what allows me to say that Nolan handled this deep theme well. Because in reality, paradoxes like chaos and suffering don't have simple answers, and wisdom doesn't try to provide them. Instead, wisdom invites us to wrestle with the paradox of life in a universe defined by both and contradictions. It gets that black and white visions of reality can't be all we rely on in such an infinite place. It understands that in a universe with both the Batman and the Joker, rules are both good and simultaneously they cannot capture the whole of these cosmos and how we live within them. That such either or dualistic frameworks can't accept things like mystery and thus must be balanced with humility and acceptance if we are to navigate the hardest and most unexplainable things with any wisdom. And though gray, that resonates far more truly than any simplistic, definitive, comfortable answer for such unanswerable questions and complex truths. It understands that our problem in suffering and chaos is rarely that we don't know why intellectually, but that rather our limited consciousness simplifies mystery and believes that we are in control of our universe, despite all the short-sightedness and pain such delusions create. You see, what Job and to degrees the Dark Knight understand is that instead of why, 
what we really need in the midst of this chaotic, messed up place, defined by suffering at times and blessing at others, what we really need in such a place is wisdom for how to navigate such a paradoxical, vast, expansive universe. One full of realities too complex for our formulas, too uncontrollable for our haggling or debating, too big and mysterious for our reasoning, things that can only be accepted and responded to. In such a world, the only real wisdom we can reply, rely upon is one that urges us to choose to do right while knowing that we may still suffer anyway. One that pushes us to realize that when we do, we can, instead of demanding explanations, denying pain, lashing out, forfeiting our integrity, or despairing. Instead, we can choose to respond in a way that lets suffering upend our dualistic mind, pushing us to embrace mystery, paradox, and reckon with hard truths about ourselves and this world. And through that, transform our suffering under the weight of chaos into the soil of humility, gratitude, surrender, peace, and trust. A process that produces within us a consciousness that can accept that we live in a cosmos that includes both the Batman and the Joker, and one that knows how to navigate such a place wisely. So what you're saying is the Joker has a point. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's what yeah, yeah. I took. That's what I took from your from all of this. You're like, Man's you know, got a point. Makes a lot of sense. Just asking questions. He's just asking questions, Mike. <laughs> just asking questions. I think that's great. I, I I think I'm very intrigued by the idea of how both the I, I so this is there will be some element where I'm kind of restating your points, but. I, I'm very intrigued by the idea about how, you know, you look at Job, you look at the Joker and this, maybe you look at all these different things. There's, there's this constant question about how much do I actually control a and B depending on my answer to that first question, how do I respond to that? Right. Mm. Because it's both. Mm. And because on the one hand, the answer to the one is actually very obvious that you don't control very much. And that's, what's constantly being put at stake in this movie. Right. And then, like you said, also in the book of Job, there's this constant point being made of like, you do not control very much of the world. You can mm. create your expectations. You can create your plans. You can create all of these systems, your security, your livelihood, whatever. But at the end of the day, you are, you know, things can just happen and suddenly you don't have anything left. Yeah. And so faced with that reality how do you respond? And and I think that's kind of what you're getting as that you know, it's it's how do you deal with the fallout of realizing that you cannot actually control any of these things? Um, it is interesting to me that this movie. I don't know if you had to quantify. You 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 touch on this, but like if you had to quantify, because you touched on the way that it's like that is sort of that question. Well, and this is what we had been talking about earlier, but there's a sense of release that you have to bring to this, right? And, and, yeah. and all of that. 
do you think this movie is necessarily coming to that same conclusion? I'm, I'm just curious, like what, you know, kind of like, cause I sort of know your perspective, but yeah. Do you think that's embedded in the dark Knight? So I think there, there is something really interesting to you. I mean, to that question in general, um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing to sure. state. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think our conversation on him surrendering his name, right? Being willing to let that go in response to all that's taken place and to ultimately suffer and to, you know, allow him as the hero to die is an interesting way that you could read the film as saying that, right? I think there yeah. is this way in which it's like there's well, a certain surrendering of control. That's exactly. With that. Exactly. Yeah. And but at the same time, there's still there still is obviously a different perspective of control that isn't embodied by what we're talking about in that act. I mean, this idea that they can't still manipulate the image and control how people respond and blah, 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 blah. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure it has the nuance to dive into that. I do think it has a, a really nuanced view of the Joker as something to be accepted and responded to. Like it sure. sees this as a byproduct of order is that there will always be chaos. I mean, it's, it's his, the Joker's final monologue, right? The unstoppable force and the immovable option both exist in our universe. It's just jarring when we see that embodied in a human being instead of in the obvious forces of nature that we see swirling around us all the time. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that's where the film does capture some of this theme to at least a degree, you know, and, and, and it's important because it's like, I think what people often hear when I talk about Job is like, so Proverbs are dumb. And it's like, well, no, I mean, they're ancient (laughs) and you shouldn't read them literally because they're wisdom from like 8,000 years or whatever ago. But the fact that both are in the same canon is what it's trying to get you to realize that like the rules in order and like wisdom, traditional wisdom and generational wisdom can be good. But if you think that it's all you need for basically controlling your life, then the universe is going to disabuse you of that quickly, right? Yeah. So I think the Batman does engage in this idea where it's like basically Batman, this concept of like standing up for against crime and trying to make a difference in the world and yada, yada, yada. Like that is good. It's not saying the Batman is bad, I think, at the end of the film. But it's saying if you think that's going to lead to a utopia or if you think that's going to not have uh, to make you confront chaotic elements at some point by being that and doing that and staying true to that as like a hardline principle – then you're going to be rudely awakened when the same actions produce their counterpart, which is chaos, right? Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Am I answering your question? I think you are. Yeah, because because that that is what I was interested in is like your yeah. perspective on how the movie deals with these questions specifically. Um, so I'm totally I'm totally there for that. I'm I, I think it's I think it's so funny because. It's all like it's it's so funny that this is all in a popcorn movie anyways. Yeah. But it's also funny because this is not a message that I think is necessarily palatable in a mm-hmm. in a popcorn movie or to a wide audience. Like if if you really drill down on on the perspective of, of you know, e- even just that first part, right? That that basic idea because I think you're right that maybe some of the nuance is lost in terms of how they respond to him. Yeah. But the fact yeah. that there is this this sort of dichotomy set up of or not dichotomy but there is a situation set up of like this character that you don't have an easy psychological out or sorry an easy um um philosophical out 
in terms of how you deal with this. It's yeah. not just like, well, you're a bad guy and you kill people. Like on the one hand it is, um, but there is a certain sense of like, well, you could wrestle with this, but if you do, you're going to come to a conclusion that's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Um, and that's not bad, obviously. I think that's, you know, that, that that's, that's one of those spirituality things is that it's like, there's, not always good answers to things in life or i shouldn't even say good there's not always easy answers to those kinds of things um so yeah i don't know i'm I'm definitely intrigued by that yeah and i think that's that's also why people are so uncomfortable about the book of joe like no one talks about joe it is people like proverbs i mean it way sucks more. yeah it's the worst I'm just and it's like well here's this book that essentially undermines them entirely and and but at the same time, healthy spirituality just has to wrestle with that. It has to confront that. It has to accept that um, because that's life. That's just the way things work. You know, it's just the way the universe works, and it doesn't shy away from that part of living in in such a strange place. And you know, it's funny. I guess one last thing I would say about it is when the Leviathan, the Behemoth, are presented in the Book of Job. One of the most fascinating parts is that you know, the God does not present them as bad or good or really any judgment on them. He's just kind of like, Hey, look at this, this exists in your universe. And that's just something you're going to have to accept. Um, it doesn't tell you why the Leviathan or the behemoth are there. It doesn't tell you what role they play. They just are. And that's, I think what, whether it handles that well or not, the dark Knight does at least can come close to touching on that same theme. The Joker simply is, he just simply is right. It's like in the universe where there's a Batman, there's also a Joker and we can, we can debate the why of that all we know want, but there is no why there's just something to be accepted and, and ultimately wrestled with. And that's, that's tough, but so is life in a complex place. I really like that last point because I was just going to say that, like, I mean, that's the, that's the value then of, of the lack of the origin story. Right. And that's like where that ends up pulling triple duty because the lack of an origin story of a coherent origin story also means that the characters themselves can't answer the question why, right? Yeah. Because oh, if it's like, right. oh yeah, he he got there because of his wife or I was like, oh, okay, so we got it. Like even systematically, we need to fix like poverty or we need to fix like, yeah. you know, parent parents being abusive to kids or whatever. It's like all of those are clear answers. But the way it presents in the movie, it's like there just isn't an answer. There, this, yeah. this is not Ugh. a problem to solve. It's just a force. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this uh you know what? Let's say it. Probably too long episode talking about the dark. I Knight. regret nothing. <laughs> we we try to mirror the films that we're doing in that way. Don't like research <laughs> that because it's probably not true. Um, we do actually end with a final question that Mike and I have each prepared. Before that, we want to let you know on the next episode we are covering Die Hard, the nineteen eighty eight. I laughed. I laughed just because I was like, man, we, we really do get stuck in the action thing sometimes, but I'm okay with that because this is truly one of the best action films ever made. And Oops. 
I can't imagine you haven't seen it, but it's it's amazing. The 1988 film, obviously starring Bruce Willis. We do recommend rewatch or watching it beforehand, um, just because I don't know it's a fun movie and uh, you'll enjoy us talking about it more. Uh, final question, uh, Mike. Why don't you go? I took the essay first. You can have this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so John, I know you don't handle conflict well. You don't mm. handle uh, people debating well. You're mm. generally a coward. And mm. you you sell out your your values almost at the first sign of trouble, kind of like yeah, the Joker said. Yeah. So with that Just in mind, all, all those truths in mind, okay. how are okay. you doing if you are in the middle of the debate on the boat with the bomb? Okay, well that's just that's just unbelievably annoying because of course my final question was Mike, you're oh. on the ferry at the end. Um, <laughs> What I just I asked you more pointedly, like, what role would you take? Would you be like that guy who's like, I mean, this isn't your philosophy, but you are kind of take charge. And there is that guy who's like, fine, no one wants to get their hands dirty. I'm going to get in there. So like, you wouldn't do that. I could see you doing that from the opposite perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Being like, like, oh, no one else is going to say it. I will. We should not kill those people. You know, like I, I could see you jumping out there. Uh, Yeah, no, it'd be it'd be my my absolute nightmare. Like yeah. truthfully, I would find a way. I would I would just look for a way out of the situation. I'm actually not sure why they didn't look for more ways out of the situation. Like Yeah, they kind of like, accepted I don't the know. I just, predicament pretty quick. <laughs> is there not like anything they could Yeah, I mean like first of all, I mean, I don't know. We could poke holes in it. But I I just feel like I would be like, "Hey guys, are we just we're just going with this? We're just accepting all of that. We're not going to like call someone or do something. I don't know." Uh, just seems like there was something that could have be done, but no, I, I, it'd be my, I would just leave. I wouldn't take part in the vote or anything. I would just go like out into the deck. I don't know. Smoke go, one last go cigarette. Go a cigarette. <laughs> go find, figure out if the, if the boat has a bar on it somewhere and you know, <laughs> pour a drink. Just 0%. Uh, what about you? Since that was my question too. Yeah, I think <laughs> the answer is, so like the power of Debo's response is that it's like so calm and collected and like. And obviously unexpected. I would mm. I, I would like to think that I would be the person who's just like, what are we doing? This isn't even a conversation. Yeah. But I also know I would do that in the most unhelpful way imaginable. Like I would be yelling, like, what are we <laughs> yeah, doing? Be... And then I would yeah, probably try to, yeah. I'd try to throw it out the window and probably break it or something. I don't know. Accidentally trigger it and yeah, you know, kill the other... I just know I, I would I... not de-escalate the situation. That's the only thing I'm sure about. <laughs> that's tough but seems pretty accurate as your yeah. friend that that yeah i cannot believe i did not say this at any point in this recording uh when i first saw the movie i was convinced that one of them was going to decide to do it but instead of the other boat it was going to blow up their own boat like i yeah. was so yeah. convinced that's yeah. what was going to happen um which was very cynical in hindsight but uh but i don't know it's, it's interesting that i stand so by another, so people are so that, that's people people suck so yeah that's what you would have done you would have tried to get rid of it it would have detonated and then blowed up your own boat and it would have never and then and everyone no, would think no the would have right. known. yeah they yeah, would have, they would have the thought you tried to kill right. them <laughs> what a what a what a sad ending no john here's this. here's the truth i would have spent the entire time pointing out the plot holes in this entire plan by the joker like guys this doesn't make sense how did he get the bombs <laughs> on the boat why are there's a boat Wait a second. <laughs> And everyone's uh, like, this is not, not helpful. 
This is not they. So they would end up like like wrapping you in duct throwing tape, throwing me and, off the boat, like, throwing you off the boat. Yeah, good times, good times. Okay, Mike. Anything else on the Dark Knight? No. Uh, oh, okay. oh, one, yeah, we one last it. thing. One I last mean, we, thing. It, this has been like three hours. So John, hopefully we've covered John, it. Yeah, one last sorry, thing. Up? I'm not wearing hockey pants. Okay, okay, okay. Just I knew it was coming. I don't know why. I, Harvey I know did. Why. Can we trust him? <sighs> Thank you guys, as always, for listening. I'm Jonathan Devine. And I'm Batman. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. You're you're so not Batman. Batman. <laughs> I'm Mike. Bye. See you guys on the next episode.